Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDOcast. My name is Dmitry Popovich. And joining me for another episode of the PDOcast Quarantine Rewatchables is my good buddy Charlie O'Connor. Charlie, what's going on, man? Hey Dimitri. It's it's good to be back. This is uh this is something I've been looking forward to. I think this is gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah, I've uh, as soon as I decided that I wanted to do this project and I realized it would be a big undertaking, there was a few kind of classics that I had to do that I think had um greater consequences just because they were later on in the postseason they were actually competing for the stanley cup there were sort of um it was like a historical crossroads involving some great players but i knew that from a pure sort of entertainment value perspective this flyers penguins 2012 series was going to be unrivaled and unmatched and i had the good fortune of taking some time to go back and actually we're going to focus here on game three because i think um that really kind of leads to this culmination of the first couple games and the wheels completely falling off the penguins and there's tons of good stuff to actually get into from game three itself but um it really is kind of this trilogy and i know the penguins actually wind up winning 10-3 in game four i believe to extend the series and they force a game six and so there's multiple layers to this beyond this but just for like a storytelling purpose and kind of trying to capture the moment um i highly recommend people if they have time and i think we all have plenty of free time these days um if you're cooped up inside stay stay safe stay indoors queue up youtube and just watch uh games one two and three because there's just so much quality content in there from the series yeah, when you uh, when you brought up the, the possibility of us doing this, uh, my thought was we could pick any of the first three games and do a great show on it because all three of those of those first three games were so watchable and then inherently rewatchable. Um, the funny thing about Game Three, in my mind, is that you know it it certainly qualifies as rewatchable. It was it was a blast to to review a couple times uh, over the past week or so, but it's probably the least resembling an actual hockey game out of the three (laughs) like it it just it feels like a bunch of extracurriculars and then there was a hockey game going on in the background but there there are long stretches of this game where it really doesn't even feel like hockey 
That is definitely true. I think game two, if you're going to pick one purely from a rewatchability perspective, it's that one just because um, it combines the best of games one and three. I believe there isn't nearly enough uh, or there isn't a nearly uh, the same amount of physicality and fighting and rough stuff after the whistle as in game three, but just in terms of the back and forth goals, um, but also it being really closely contested heading into the third, much like game one, uh, game two really kind of checks all of those boxes. But I think game three, is a good one for us to do just because it really does um, kind of encapsulate everything that had led up to it in this series in terms of where it went wrong for the Penguins, what the Flyers were doing well. And there's so many bullet points for us to get into and talk about um, that can lead to many different conversations just in terms of like these little micro events in the game. So I think as the game goes on, there's a large stretch in game two that isn't particularly entertaining. And I kind of found myself feeling like I wanted to fast forward through it. But game one and uh, period one in game three is, is um, like bang for your buck. It's, stacked up against anything in terms of just high event hockey goals being scored fights everything it feels like period one in this game has absolutely everything you could ever ask for yeah it's just it's just sheer ridiculousness i think that's you know as someone who covers the flyers and does podcasts on the flyers whenever whenever we talk about the 2012 series the joke we kind of keep throwing out there in our podcast is like it was a great series but it wasn't hockey it was something completely (laughs) different and especially you know kind of with the way the game is trended it really feels not not dated because i think these type of series would be fun regardless but it's just it's so different from what you expect even from a playoff series um at the same time you know, it's just such a fun, fun series. And obviously for Flyers fans, this is a great one to rewatch because it it ended in, you know, there were a couple games, I guess, in the middle that Flyers fans probably don't want to relive, but the way it started and then obviously the way it ended, it's just one of those series that, you know, Flyers fans will always enjoy going back and rewatching. Yeah, this game is like, peak wwe i mean obviously there's a bunch of wrestling involved as well but it's like it's not necessarily sports it's not necessarily entertainment it's sports entertainment and like we put it all together and you get this uh combination of things so um yeah i highly recommend people go watch these games as always um on the pdo cast we've released this is part four of the quarantine watchables um just from a pure entertainment perspective this is i think um number one on the list that we've done so far so let's get into the categories and work our way through this because i've got like 10 pages here of notes uh, of stuff that i wanted to get to and i want to try to work my way through all of it i'm sure you have a bunch of uh, observations as well having relived this game a couple times so let's start off with where were you in um let's take ourselves back uh to start off this conversation with uh jumping back into this just kind of spring of 2012 where hockey was at where we were at personally where, where everything was happening for you Sure. So I was uh, I was a year out of college when this uh, when this series happened, and I'll never forget this. Like this, particularly the first three games, I'll never forget it because. Um, so I went to UPenn, and every year they have like the spring fling, which is basically just this big party on campus. And I was a year out of college, so I still had a lot of friends. Like they were a year below me, so basically my entire college friend group came back to town for the UPenn spring fling. And they, that usually starts on like a Thursday. So this series started on a Wednesday. Um, so Wednesday, I just, you know, watched it in my apartment. Um, Thursday, there wasn't a game. Friday, 
all of my friends were basically crashing in my apartment. So we all watched game two, which was one of the three totally bonkers games. Then Saturday, there wasn't a game, and that was like the day we, we went out and partied. So Sunday, it was an afternoon game, and I just remember, you know, we're all just hungover, we're recovering from the weekend, and then this game comes on, and it was insane. Like, it was just, it was the perfect game to watch recovering from a weekend of, of going out and just <laughs> drinking constantly. <laughs> Yeah, I was, um, I look back at this era of hockey pretty fondly. I think, you know, this was really when I fully decided to immerse myself in this and started thinking that this was a career path I wanted for myself, whatever capacity that was that I wanted to just, just work in hockey. I remember, you know, I've talked about a bunch in the podcast, but that kind of 2010 11 Vancouver Canucks team, they made it all the way to the Stanley Cup final game seven, really kind of hooked me into hockey and then leading into this season and then this postseason um, and then the Kings ironically enough beating the Canucks in round one and sort of being this analytics darling that was the eighth seed um, but actually was the best team in the league ever since they got Jeff Carter and, and were really just this shot shot share monster and so I really kind of it hooked me from a storytelling perspective where I was like oh like there's something really interesting happening here and it feels like hockey's changing and I want to be a part of that and, and sort of tell whatever stories I can and so I got into it and there's also a lot that I don't really remember from this time like it was funny when preparing for this podcast and really diving back into this world and re-watching the games but also reading a bunch of the articles and stuff I was like oh yeah like that happened it, it felt like an entirely different world I mean we're gonna get into a lot of the uh, personnel decisions and how these teams were put together particularly the Flyers like it felt like it was a much more of a sort of uh, devil may care attitude um, in terms of teams just doing crazy stuff and making all these decisions before it really got very analytical and turned into much more of a business and much more of a science. No, don't get me wrong. There's still teams that sort of make those types of um, moves that seem like there hasn't been much thought or, or plan put into it. But certainly at this time, there was it felt like there was a lot more madness and just a lot of wild things going on in the NHL. Yeah, and, and the Flyers, you know, Paul Holmgren, I think I'm sure we're going to talk about him during the show, but he was the Flyers GM at the time, and he was notorious for doing, I I don't think crazy is the, the right word, but just the kind of stuff that always grabbed headlines. That was just his mm. thing, and it was in part because I think that was just his style of, of general managing, and it was in part because he had Ed Snyder, the owner, you know, screaming at him that I want to win a Stanley Cup before I die, so they were just always all in like i'm convinced and i didn't cover the flyers at this point i had, i had just started blogging about the team like right after i graduated college so i was still i was blogging but you know not on an extremely regular basis i did get credentialed for for this season but not for the playoff series because they uh, they cut down the amount of people that they they credential for the playoffs obviously because there's out of towners coming in mm. but uh but holmgren just he always was in the news and I, I remain convinced that like agents would just leak to the media that the Flyers are in on a guy even if they weren't just because everyone in hockey just assumed the Flyers were in on every single free agent and in on every single trade because they kind of were like the, the amount of rumors that were flying around concerning the Flyers during this era which I would say is like maybe like 2009 through like 2013, the Flyers were, if you believed everything you read, the Flyers were in on everyone. And Paul Holmgren, like, I don't know if there's a GM around today that is anywhere near as aggressive as Paul Holmgren was during this era. Um, 
it just you just don't see it. And again, that might be because of the way the games changed. It also might just be because Paul Holmgren was kind of a one of a kind general manager, even in that era. Yeah, one of my favorite, it was like the early incarnations of uh, of hockey Twitter memes was like the, the picture of Paul Holmgren's face beside the phone. Yes. And it just said, the caption just soon. And soon. it's like him just, it just felt like he was in the middle of everything. I think like the peak of it was the Shea Weber offer sheet saga, but it felt like I have him down. We're, we're going to skip ahead here and do like a, I have Paul Holmgren as a clear apex mountain guy in this period of time because he takes over the team in 2006. And, and we, I think it's a good point to make that um, he was certainly sort of empowered and enabled by ownership to make these decisions. It's not like it was a rogue GM just getting all crazy it clearly was uh, a plan of theirs or, or sort of um, a, calculated risk to try to get to the pinnacle and win a Stanley Cup and they almost did in 2010 um, without really kind of caring about what that's going to look like in the future but yeah he takes over this team in 2006 and pretty much right away I mean they give six years to 32 year old Kimo Timonen they give eight years to 29 year old Danny Breer they give the 12 and 11 years to Richards and Carter respectively who at least were in their early to mid 20s at the peak of their careers but there's like a seven year deal here for I don't even know how old Chris Pronger was at the time. I think like 34 maybe or something like that. There's yeah, um, yeah. or maybe even 37. I think he was, he was really old. Like it was no, a crazy I, deal at the I, time. I specifically remember that because there was a big, one thing that you have to remember about that, or that Flyers fans certainly remember about that era is that it was still pretty early in like, the the new CBA the post right. um you know the post lockout CBA and the Flyers like from what I understand the Flyers when they signed Pronger to that deal they signed into the deal when he was thirty four but it wasn't going to kick in until he was thirty five and they were of the mm-hmm. opinion when they signed it that it wasn't going to count as a thirty five plus deal because they signed it before he turned thirty five but it turned out it did count as a thirty five plus deal because it wasn't going to kick in until he turned thirty five so he was right on that borderline when they signed him to the deal. Yeah, there was the poison pill, uh, Shea Weber offer sheet, which we mentioned, which the Predators actually matched. But uh, we're going to see the sort of long-term lasting effects of that potentially in the coming years if there's a recapture penalty. He gives nine years, not only gives nine years to 31-year-old Ilya Brzgalov, but I forgot, trades two third-round picks so that he can get the rights to him so that he can give him this $42 million deal as if, uh, you know, he had to secure that because, you know, $42 million itself wasn't nearly good enough to get it done. You got <laughs> a six-year deal to 30-year-old Scott Hartnell. We're going to get more into that. Uh, one of his final moves was trading for Andy McDonald and giving him the infamous six-year deal. I mean, there's a I for, completely forgot, but there's a five-year deal here for a recently bought-out 33-year-old Vinile Cavalier. Like, it was just, yep. I mean, it was just pure pure madness basically from october 2006 to when he took over to this i guess 2014 so it was this like seven year period which rivals um the activity of anyone from this era so i think paul holmgren was a very clear uh apex mountain guy at some point in time during this run because he was just you certainly can't blame him for a lack of effort that's for sure yeah it's fascinating i think we'll probably get into a little bit more depth about this when we get to the the all the people on apex mountain but i think this is this is absolutely paul holmgren's high point as as general manager because like the brisgalov deal was bad when it was made but what's always been fascinating to me about the Brisgolf deal is that you know it's hard to it's hard to separate that from the Carter and Richards trades which happened mm. not not necessarily because they wanted Brisgolf but they did have to find a way to fit him and they wanted to shake up the team and whatnot and what's hilarious to me is that if you could find a way to just do the Carter and Richards deals without signing Brisgolf 
that would have been amazing because those deals both worked out extremely well for the Flyers. It was just they also got this goalie who ended up not being very good and then they ended up having to use the compliance buyout on him. But this year, like this year and this game aside, because Brzezgolf, as we'll talk about, was really bad in this game. Um, hmm. Brzezgolf was okay. He, he was decent. He wasn't amazing. He probably had more or less like a league average year, but he didn't hurt the team. And because the, the trades that they made ended up working out so well, the Flyers ended up looking like a really, really good team going into the series. And that's something that that does. I, I remember going into the series as a as a Flyers fan because I really wasn't a media member at the time um, and being really annoyed at how the media was just I think the national media specifically, particularly the people in Canada, just were assuming the Penguins were going to roll in this series. And that's not saying the Penguins weren't very good. Like, obviously, you have you had Malkin at maybe his best. You had Crosby back from the injury and playing great. So I I got it from a from a rational standpoint. But I just remember mm. thinking, like, I don't think these people understand how good this Flyers team is. And this series showed that they were, I think, a lot better than a lot of the national people thought. Granted, that was in part because I think the national people were just extremely high on the Penguins. But Holmgren put together a really good team, particularly up front. And that's something we'll talk about later as well. But Briz was one of those pieces where like, it hadn't gotten terrible yet. So you really got mm-hmm. to see all the good things about this roster in this series. Doc, the one thing for the Penguins, they're going to have to rely on a lot of their Stanley Cup experience from 09 and 08 because right now they're spinning out of control. They need somebody to reel it in. You see those eyes? That's the thousand yards there. That's a sign of a team that, whoa, how did we get ourselves into this situation? There's lack of confidence right now. There's a lack of focus right now. And there are a lot of guys deviating from the game plan. And that's what happens when you sense the inevitability factor, and that is the other guys have our number. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads us neatly into the lasting legacy of this game or sort of helping set the scene for what led up to this, because, you know, you mentioned how people view the Penguins. And obviously, whenever you have two of the greatest players of their generation and Crosby and Malkin, I think regardless of who's around them or how the team is looking at the time, once you're entering the postseason, they're going to get a lot of the national storylines and people are going to be talking about them. But I do think, you know, this Penguins team, I, I actually looked it up heading into this postseason. They were the odds on favor to win the Stanley Cup. They were at four to one. Next yeah. best were the Rangers, who actually were the number one seed in the East that year because Henrik Lundqvist was absolutely out of his mind. And the Canucks, who won one playoff game in this postseason. So those were Rangers and Canucks were at 11 to two, but the Penguins were the odds on favorite. And it was funny to look back at this because you know, we often uh, bemoan the current playoff seeding and the system and sort of how, um, because the league is looking for these rivalries similar to Penguins Flyers, they're trying to uh, shoe in these matchups in divisions. So you it leads to this kind of imbalance where you're wondering whether we're properly valuing regular season dominance and if it's unfavorably skewed to one division or one conference at a time. But looking back at the system we had at this point in time, it's funny because I kind of forgot that the top three seeds were automatically given in each conference to the three division winners. So in this particular season in 2011-12, the division with the Penguins, the Rangers, the Flyers, and the Devils was just insanely stacked. And it led to the fact that the Rangers win the East and they're the one seed with 108 point or 109 points. The Penguins actually have 108. They're one point behind them, but they fall into the four seed 
even though they're second in the East in points, second in the East in goal differential, and they play this Flyers team in the 4-5 matchup that's third in the East in points and fourth in the East in goal differential. And so I was looking at this, and pretty much by any objective measure, you would say that the Penguins and Flyers heading into this series were two of the top seven or eight teams in the entire NHL this time. And so it's crazy to look back at it where they're playing in this four or five matchup, but there's so much more to it. And, and, um, I guess the, yeah, you're right. The Penguins just kind of ran into this team that was sneakily much better than we would have given them credit for, but there was so much more nuance and layers to it beyond just your typical four or five matchup. Yeah, I, I think everyone knew it was going to be a fantastic series to watch, but I do think there was there was a feeling that the Penguins were ultimately going to win it. And it's funny to look back as a you know as a Flyers fan because to me the legacy of this series for the Flyers is that this clearly was this series in particular was clearly the high point of the rest of the decade. Like this is as, this is as good as the Flyers got in the 2010s because after this series. They then played the Devils, who they were heavily favored against. They win game one in overtime, and then they lose the next four. So they, they, they lose the series. Then the next summer is when we talk about Paul Holmgren. It's this, this is the summer when Paul Holmgren's like heater just ended because he, so he, he loses Yager. He loses Matt Carl. Um, he goes because, because what he had, what he did is he went and tried to get, both um, the, the two guys who both ended up going to Minnesota, Zach Parise and Ryan Suter. And he actually right. offered them more money than Minnesota did, but they, they both wanted to go to Minnesota. That's why they went. So because he was kind of, because he was in that, in that pursuit, he loses Yager and he loses Carl. So then, because now his roster's weaker, he didn't get, he didn't get Suter or Parise or both, which is, I think, what they were... They, I think they, they, they wanted Suter more, but they figured, well, we'll offer both. Well, then he goes out and he offers Sheets Weber, and he doesn't get him. Hmm. So what you end up with... Oh, and this was also the summer when he traded James Van Riemsdyk for Luke Shen, because apparently one of the driving forces behind that was that the uh, the devils after the series claimed that it was very easy to forecheck the flyers because they didn't have a right-handed shot on defense so they go and they trade james van Riemsdyk for um, for luke shen who obviously was not, not a particularly good defenseman so i look at this 2012 summer as the summer that like started to kill the flyers and then after that like they make the playoffs the year after but they're never this deep, particularly up front, ever again. And then what you end up having is you end up having the guys that are left from this team, you know, particularly Claude Drew and Jake Voracek. They end up having to carry a very, very thin Flyers team through the rest of the decade just to keep them, like, mildly relevant. And I don't think anybody realized, anybody who followed the Flyers realized while watching the series that, like, this was as good as it was going to get for the Flyers because after this, they trend downward for pretty much the rest of the decade, really up until this year, where they finally seem like they're reemerging as legitimate threat. But this was really as good as it got for the Flyers, and I don't think anybody at the time realized it. Well, I think it also, it felt like during this era Paul Holmgren had and the Flyers in general, I guess, had this like obsessive uh, desire to uh, solve their goaltending issues with the number one. And so they go out and spend all this money on Bobrovsky, on um, Brzezgalov. And there's obviously this lasting sort of domino effect where they give away Bobrovsky and, and all this stuff happens. But then they also had this like lust for 
a top number one defenseman, preferably a big body guy who could eat a lot of minutes. I think it started with the sort of little taste that Pronger gave them before his career ended. And then they go after Suter, they go after Weber. There was a period of time here where they gave up a pick to get the rights for Ham used to try and sign him long term before he chose the Canucks. They trade for Shen. Like it felt like they were like, we're going to get this number one guy at any cost. And it's funny to look back at that now. I think that's where GMs and teams can really back themselves into a corner and get into trouble where they try to, um, at any cost, like lock down one specific type of player prototype or need because they feel like that's the way you have to build your team. And that's often when you can kind of talk yourself and, and work yourself into a series of issues. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Pronger, and I think that's something that obviously has to be talked about when you talk about kind of the downfall of the 2010 Flyers, because that all changes if Chris Pronger doesn't get hurt. Because, you know, who knows how he would have aged had he not had the, uh, you know, the severe concussion and, and eye injury that essentially ended his career. But that came out of nowhere, and he was still a really good defenseman right up to that injury like i think the this this year is when it happens it happens at the beginning of this year he plays like 15 games or something right yeah like and i think he had like 11 points in 15 games he was still a very very good defenseman and if if pronger stays healthy like i even now like i watch i watch zidane ochara and like zidane ochara obviously isn't as good as he used to be you know as he is now but like he's still a useful defenseman and really up until maybe two years ago he was still a legitimate top pair defenseman and i watch him and i always have in the back of my head like man i wonder how chris pronger would have aged like i wonder if pronger honestly could have played until the end of that ridiculous contract and i think there's a decent chance he might have because he's an all-time great like he's an all-time great defenseman and as much criticism as holmgren got for that contract if he doesn't get hurt i think he probably ages pretty well because he was just so smart and the fact that they lost him that's what then sends Holmgren on this desperate quest to fix the defense and that's what get that that's what gets him Luke Shen that's what gets him Andrew McDonald like they just start going for guys that I believe Holmgren was a, a very good talent evaluator of forwards I do not think he was a good talent evaluator of defensemen. Like, beyond, like, obviously everybody knew Chris Pronger was a great defenseman. But when he loses Pronger, the guys he targeted just were not that good. And they were all, like, a lot of them were very much like that old school type of, uh, you know, type of defenseman. And I think that was just a blind spot that became so much more obvious and so much more painful for the Flyers because Pronger gets hurt. If he doesn't get hurt, I I have a very very good feeling that this Flyers team at least stays good to the through the midpoint of the of the twenty tens. Not just because he's a great player, but because of all the moves that the loss of Pronger then inspired. Yeah, I think the the injury itself certainly blindsided them. I think. If you take a step back and you're like, okay, a 38 year old with whatever, 13 or 1400 games that played during this brutal, much more barbaric era of hockey that we had back then for the meat of his career gets hurt. It's, it's much less of a surprise. So I don't know. I, I think. You're right. Like this is Daniel Chara, for example, but I think that's sort of the uh, exception that proves the rule. I, I think expecting uh, guys to still carry that type of weight for them is when you can get yourself into trouble. But I mean, it's funny to watch this game three in particular. There's like a sequence where Braden Coburn does something really well, and Pierre Maguire goes like, "Keep in mind, this is a team that doesn't have Chris Pronger, Andre Mazaros." 
but Braden Coburn is carrying the heavy lifting for them. It was like, oh my God, like I, I totally forgot that they were sort of still using that as a thing. Like, oh my God, we, we, I wish we had Chris Pronger in this series because I'd, I'd totally forgotten that he'd even played 13 or 14 games in that regular season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he was a key part of this team. And I, I do think he probably would have, you know, dealt with injuries. Like the year before, Pronger missed a lot of the season due to injury. But when he played, he was still very good. And then he came back this year and he played very well to start the year and then obviously had the injury. Um, and then I think that just sent the Flyers on this run of we need to fix the defense and they never could. Um, kind of changing gears, you know, kind of go to the Penguins. You know, obviously the Penguins stayed competitive um, through the 2010s. They they didn't fall off after this. They stayed a good team. They eventually won their cups. But you know, I looked at this as you know it, this series in some ways to me it it, it kind of hinted at the problems like the underlying problems below the surface with the Penguins that they needed to fix before they could win again. And to me, like you have you know obviously the goaltending was bad in this series. I don't think Flurry's a bad goalie, but you know they they don't win until until they get uh, until they get Mary, um, and then the coaching. I mean they don't win until they change coaches and, and they get uh, you know they end up with um, you know they they I guess what they end up with Johnson who was bad, um, and then obviously you know you, you make the change and yeah. and you win you get Sullivan. But it's fascinating to me because the the flaws that show in this series you know coaching goaltending and then just sometimes they struggle to keep their cool. I, I think. You know, they sort of popped up throughout the rest of the decade and they didn't start winning championships again until they found a way to resolve those problems. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to get into all that. I think the last sort of lasting legacy of this game was, um, you know, it's obviously the Battle of Pennsylvania. I think there was a bunch of bad blood here. They they keep referencing an April 1st game towards the end of the regular season where things kind of got out of hand. It was their third time meeting in the postseason in five years. Um, I remember this as, and we're going to get into flurry here, but kind of the goaltending itself just completely self-combusting for for both teams like the the flyers win this and i think in game two in particular or it was really game one i forget that it all kind of blends together now but brisgolov actually (laughs) makes a number of key saves that sort of helps right the ship but just considering the the name value and also how many resources financially the teams had respectively invested in these guys i remember at the time with all the goals piling up everyone was like how could this possibly be happening so we're gonna get into all that i think let's sort of set the scene here so in game one, um, the Flyers come back from a 3 nothing deficit. And the 3-1 goal to really kickstart that comeback is this egregious um, offside where Danny Briere <laughs> comes in and scores on a breakaway. And then uh, I think Flurry gives up like a really bad one to make a 3-2. And they eventually wind up winning 4-3 in, in overtime. In game two, they similarly come back. And it was really fascinating because... Um, we're going to get into what Claude Giroux does in this series, but like there's a bunch of sort of things here that, that he does remarkably well. He obviously has the hat trick and the six point game. Sean Couturier has his own hat trick. They wind up winning in the third period and win eight five after an empty netter. And then in this game three, it's eight four flyers. Um, so yeah, just the fact that there was like 45 goals combined between these teams in the four <laughs> games was crazy. Um, and that's kind of speaks to this sort of high event peak entertainment, just complete batshit um, nature of it. But I don't know, beyond all of that, what age the best for you here? Um, let's let's start off with yours. And then I, I've got like a full list of, of things that really age well for me. Yeah. So um, so the one thing I would say that you know, rewatching the series that aged really well um, is just the quality of the Flyers forwards. Like, I don't think we realized in the moment 
just how good they were because we didn't know what was going to happen. But like, because obviously you have Drew, you know, I, 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 I would definitely put him on Apex Mountain here. And then you have Scott Hartnell had a great year that year. But like, you also have, you have Yager on this team. And I don't, no one realized that he was going to stay really good through like the middle of his 40s. I think there was a feeling in this series that, well, this might be like the last we see of Yager, and certainly wasn't. You have Danny Briere, who's scoring a ton of goals. You have Wayne Simmons, who just had his first good year, like a good scoring year, and he was going to turn into this, you know, 30-goal year, best net front guy in the league. Uh, type of guy for the rest of this decade pretty much you have Braden Shen who ended up being like a first liner on on a cup team with the Blues you have Jake Voracek who starts the series on line four and he becomes a first liner and then you have Sean Couturier who is now one of the best two-way players in hockey like I, I I look at this and I say like they had eight guys who were like first line caliber talents. And then you had Max Talbot, who had the best year of his career this year in the regular season. You had Matt Reed, who led all rookies in goal scoring, which is something that I think Doc throws out there. It's like, wait, really? He did? Um, but but he, the, was, the, he was older, right? Because he played in college, I think. Yeah, yeah. He, they, they signed him out of Bemidji State. But like yeah. the, the, the quality of the Flyers forwards in this series was unreal. And they didn't even have James Van Reems like for the start of the series. Like he was hurt. He comes back later in the series. So you might, if you want to consider him a first line caliber player, like the, the amount of talent the Flyers had in this series up front was just staggering. Certainly. Yeah. They had um, an embarrassment of riches up front to the point where it was funny seeing at the start of this series that, you know, on their lineup sheet, Voracek was listed as a fourth liner. Now, LaViolette was really putting um, the lines in a blender here. I actually think, yeah. funny enough, yeah. the Shen, Briere, Simmons trio was one of the only lines that was held together. Like, you had a lot of Yager with Giroux and Hartnell, but you'd see Giroux playing all over the place. They tried to get him out on the ice as much as possible, and you'd have him playing with Voracek, with Reed, with Couturier here and there, depending on the situation. So they're really mixing it up, but Voracek actually winds up scoring the overtime winner in Game 1 playing uh, with Giroux. So it, it was really funny to see all that and, and just kind of relive that. You're right, JBR doesn't play until, I think, Game 4 or 5 in this series, uh, coming back from an injury, and they wind up trading him after the series, after the season so we don't see um them at real full form it felt like they were constantly missing one or two guys here but it was just ridiculous which i think makes it even worse that zach ronaldo was getting such consistent minutes (laughs) when you had this kind of glut of talent and it was like we need to find a way to get zach ronaldo out there like he was legitimately i think he was like a regular on the third line this season right like i think sean couturier's two most common line mates in his rookie year were max talbot and zach ronaldo yeah, for whatever reason, Peter Laviolette has always loved Zach Ronaldo. Like Zach Ronaldo, the what what always cracks me up about Zach Ronaldo with Laviolette. So the year before this, when they played Buffalo in the first round, and that was a bizarre series because the Flyers were a way better team, and they ended up getting taken to seven games against them. Um, and then Laviolette lost his mind with the the goalies. He was cycling through everybody. He brought Michael Layton back in, but one of the like hilarious things that I think back on is that Zach Ronaldo had never played an NHL game before and Laviolette puts him in that playoff series like for whatever reason Peter Laviolette and he even like used him a lot in Nashville so Peter Laviolette for whatever reason just had a had a thing for Zach Ronaldo um but kind of going back to this forward thing I mean one thing I definitely believe aged extremely well um you hear it a lot when you watch this game you obviously see it in game two 
but just Sean Couturier, this is, I think, the first time that everybody sees the player that he's ultimately going to become. And during the series, you know, Pierre's gushing over him, like, how good is this guy going to be? But, like, looking back, now we know how good he was going to be. So this is, like, the first time where the entire league, you know, the entirety of North America got to see Sean Gaturia and his potential. And obviously that ages really well because now we know what was going to ultimately happen with the rest of his career and his progression. He takes a hit to make the play and then they go, and look who's back, Doc. Sean Gaturia back against Malcolm. Defensively responded. Look at his hand. He goes right away. Malcolm played that with a high stick. That's amazing awareness by a young player. Watch his hand. As soon as he played with a high stick, hey, high stick. This kid just get better and better all I think it was really funny, though, because Pierre, throughout these first couple games of the series, keeps reminding us that Sean Couturier is only 19 years old, and he keeps saying, can you imagine what this guy's going to look like when he's 21? And it's funny because, and part of it was because of the way they used him, obviously, um, and like who he was playing with and not being on the top unit power play and all that. So like his counting stats finally get there in what, 27, 18, when they pair him with Giroux and kind of get the most out of both those guys. And he hasn't looked back since, but it actually takes him a while. So if anything, it ages really well, but it's also a good sort of reminder about patience with players or how role dependent um, and how kind of circumstantial just box guard production can be for players because I think Pierre Maguire just assumes that, oh my God, if this is what Couturier is at right now at 19, every single year from here on out, he's going to get better. And that's not necessarily always the way it works with young players. Like it makes sense that you'd think at one point he has like a collision in game two, I think with Brooks Orpik and Pierre says, oh, Brooks Orpik's lucky to get alive out of that one because if you had run into 21 year old Sean Couturier there, he'd be in some serious trouble. And that makes sense from like a, a putting on weight perspective. He certainly looks remarkably sort of gangly and, uh, and lanky in this series, but, um, it does take him a while. I think he doesn't really break out offensively until he's like 24, 25 years old or something around there. So it's just a good reminder of how sometimes that progression for young players can go in the NHL. Yeah, and he's a lot slower in this series than um, mm-hmm. you know than he ends up becoming. Like he's never he, he's obviously not like a burner now, but he's he's a legitimately solid skater. I think now. And in this series, like, there are definitely pucks that he doesn't get to because he's just, you know, that was one of the reasons why he slipped to eight, that and the fact that he had he had mono in his draft year and that kind of made his his draft minus one season or his draft one season just look like eh, it was okay. It wasn't as good as we thought. But, you know, he definitely works on his, his skating, his puck handling ability, but you certainly see in this series, like, what he what he can become and what he ultimately will become. But, you know, I'm obviously looking this, at this more from a, uh, right. you know, from a Flyers perspective. I, I'm curious to hear what, what you think age the best. Well, one more thing on Katri. It's, it's really fascinating because I think he, I mean, he was only 19 years old in the series, so we need to remember that. But he has, you know, he has that hat trick in game two, what was fascinating, what I didn't really remember, was how aggressively, and this sort of speaks to how good he already was defensively, and also how much Peter Laviolette trusted him at this point in his career, where they were like exclusively hunting that Malkin versus Couturier yeah. matchup. I think in game one, they keep reciting the stat where he was out there for like 15 of Malkin's 24 shifts or something like that at 5 on 5. And Malkin actually, in these first couple of games, he produces some nice goals on the power play, but at 5-on-5, five five, he pretty much is completely neutralized by the combination of Couturier and Talbot. Um, in Game 2, Couturier is out there for the opening draw, and Dan Bilesma sends the Crosby line because he gets the last change. And so funny enough to watch that, 
Laviolette doesn't like that matchup. He wants Couturier out there to save himself for the Malk and Neal combo. And so he quickly, right after the draw, tries to pull the Couturier line and send Giroux out there instead. And Crosby winds up scoring like 15 seconds into game two. And it was just funny to like look back at that and be like, oh my God, they were like very serious about how much they relied upon Couturier to play pretty much exclusively against Malkin to the point where in game three, when the game's getting out of hand, we're going to talk more about what James Neal does, but you can see that kind of bubbling frustration of how they've bottled him up at five on five. And he finally snaps and just completely, um, cheap shots Couturier when the puck's not even around him. And so I, I think if anything, like Couturier should view that as a badge of honor because like it just shows the job he did on those two guys who combined for 90 goals during the regular season between the two of them. Yeah, and, and I, we were we were talking about this, um, I guess, over DM a few days ago. That like we we shouldn't we we have to to note just how good Evgeny Malkin was in this season. Like he was incredible. That this was this was I believe his first MVP year, right? Um. Yeah. Yeah. He was. I mean, let, let's save that for Apex Mountain because I have a lot okay. of Malkin, Malkin thoughts. <laughs> okay. That. I, I think uh, we should save that. You know what aged best for me here? Um, the twenty four seven series and the road to the winter classic so it wasn't Mm. from this series but just in terms of letting us in and giving us a peek behind the scenes to um familiarize ourselves nationally with the players involved in the game that we watch play hockey it was i remember this as you know the flyers and the rangers were on this year and there were just so many classic moments from the Giroux Ott uh, versus Steve Ott face-off where he's oh, telling the face offs, yeah. look up his percentage on, on NHL.com. He's like, yeah, no doubt you're a pretty good player, but I'm going to win this draw. There's the, you know, Brisgolov, obviously, uh, with his comments on the universe and, and everything. And funny enough, he talks about how important it is to protect Tigers. So maybe he was uh, ahead of the curve there with the whole <laughs> Tiger King thing. But oh, God. Um, you've got, you've got Couturier as a teenager living with like Danny Briere and his kids. And I remember there was a ton of unintentional comedy involved in that. Um, you've got, on the other side of things, for the Rangers, you've got Artem Anisimov uh, scoring that goal and then shooting at one of the, with a stick at one of the Lightning players and having this brawl. And so I remember there was like so many talking points and things that came away from that. And I was just thinking about now when during this time of quarantine, we don't have any hockey games on. We see teams still trying to sort of churn out content and um, give us access to the players. And I know it's a completely different time and there's so much going on and we need to factor all that in. But you see how like forced it is with players just like sitting at home trying to show personality on some of these interviews or Q&As. And it's like just going back to then how organically they made it seem and how um, how much I enjoyed it. I remember on a weekly basis, I was like, I can't wait for those four or five weeks to watch this to see what these players and what these coaches are up to. And so just thinking back on that fondly, I know they did it a couple more times, but um I think the NHL could certainly do a much better job of sort of showing us that behind the scenes stuff and what these players are all about. Yeah, I think, uh, and this is something that like Flyers fans have talked a lot about, especially during the uh, during the lean years, uh, which is part of the reason why this season was was becoming so much fun for Flyers fans. Is that this Flyers team, like even setting aside the fact that they were a really good team, they were just a lot of fun. 
they had a lot of personalities. Like Scott Hartnell is is a gigantic personality. Danny Briere was super popular. You have Wayne Simmons establishing himself. You know, you have Drew still young and developing. Like this was a team that was just flat out fun. They were fun to watch. They were fun to follow. Like going into this playoffs, the Flyers played the Penguins. Um, you know, a few weeks before the season ended, I believe. And that was the game where you have Laviolette like standing up and screaming at Bilesma. And that was it was just the kind of crazy stuff that was happening where like this team was just a lot of fun to watch. And I think going back to 24-7, that was something that 24-7 like certainly highlighted was that this was like a legitimately intriguing bunch of people that were a fun. I mean, I, as I, I didn't really cover them, but they were must have been a fun team to cover, and they certainly were a fun team to follow from a from a fan perspective, just because they actually did show their personalities. Um, I've got on what age the best as well, Mark Andre Fleury, because I remember at this point in time, um, there was a while there where he was pretty much a league average, probably even slightly below league average goalie by any sort of underlying metric of, of goalie performance when you're adjusting for circumstances and all that. But he was riding his draft pedigree and then yes. that 09 playoff cup ring. And so everyone just kind of similar to what we do with Carey Price now, I feel like it was funny seeing the the NHLPA player poll where they still the players still voted him as the number one goalie or the goalie you'd want most if you had to win one game even though it's been a couple of years now since I think he's been the best goalie in the league but some of these some of these sort of um, narratives or, or or beliefs on player performance are so tough to shake and generally take a couple of years beyond their expiry date but for Flurry at this time everyone just would shoehorn him into all of these debates about um, who was the best goalie like who was the most reliable come playoff time and in 0-9-10 he has an 891 save percentage in the playoffs this year he has an 834 and the wheels just <laughs> completely come off and we hear so much about how um you know for goalies it's like similar to boxers like when you get punched once like you're never the same again for goalies it's it's considered to be so much like between the years in terms of psychology and confidence and and once you lose that and get shaken maybe you never get it back and so i think it was certainly fair to wonder what flurry's career was going to look like after this point in 2012-13 the penguins make it to the conference final but he actually loses the crease in round one to thomas vokun which i almost forgot and then it wow. takes a while and you know, he has a couple sort of league average regular seasons again. Then Matt Murray comes in and steals the crease from him. But in that 16 17 um, playoff stretch where he comes in when Murray got hurt, and especially against the Capitals, plays so remarkably well, and then goes to Vegas and has this second shelf life to his career. So that's why I had him what age the best, because I think at this point in time, if you ask me what the most realistic outcome for him was, I'd, I would have honestly said that I just, I don't think his career would have been over, but like I wouldn't have thought that he would ever get to those heights again. And then just based on what he's done over the past couple of years in Vegas and on his way out in Pittsburgh during that, during that cup run for them as the backup, like I think he certainly salvage will look like it was a pretty bad situation. Well, you got to wonder about the confidence of Mark andre Fleury right now, based on some of the goals that have gone in in this series against him. Yeah, yeah, it, his he really has a, has had a fascinating career, and obviously the you know the Vegas season is just going to be if he I, I would assume he probably will get elected into the Hall of Fame. I would think um, you know just based on like 
the, the, the types of things that Hall of Fame voters tend to tend to value and that that season in Vegas and I guess the the one playoff run he had um, like the, with Pittsburgh that that those are going to be the things that get him in there if, if and when he does but I remember as a like as just a Flyers fan at the time I remember being so feeling so satisfied that like flurry fell apart not just because the Flyers won the series but because for a couple years leading up to the series, I had been one of the people screaming that Mark Andre Fleury isn't actually that good and that he's overrated. And this was just purely from a fan perspective, it was satisfying because this was like the the proof for everyone to see that Mark Andre Fleury wasn't this you know top three goalie. And actually, you guys were all overrating him because of he was on a really good team and because of that one playoff run. My my final what age the best, and this probably is is the correct answer in terms of what actually aged the best. It was. The result of that dual Jeff Carter and Mike Richards trade from June twenty third, yeah. two thousand eleven, right? Because and we can we can do that here. Like, um, there's obviously a lot of nuance and a lot of layers to it. But just when you look at the fact that they got back Voracek, Couturier, Shen, Sibbins, and like I think three other draft picks um, that I don't don't think ultimately amounted to anything. But just that volume, and when you look at all those guys who are U twenty five at this point, basically that are making uh, peanuts, especially compared to the players they were traded for. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the, the Flyers mismanaged that cap and used those savings poorly. But just when you look at this series, how good all those guys already were uh, playing against Crosby and Malkin and, and a really good Penguins team, it's just remarkable to look back that they were able to get that volume and that quality of pieces for those two guys. Yeah, and it goes back to what we were saying about Holmgren kind of being on Apex Mountain because, I mean, these the, the Carter-Richards trades were, you know, in in a sense mandated by Ed Snyder. I mean, it's the the whole thing kind of stemmed from, you know, number one, there were there were obviously those questions about, you know, their extracurriculars. But the big thing was was that the goalie situation was such a mess in 2011 in the playoffs because Laviolette lost total faith of Bobrovsky and then turned to his backups and ended up throwing Leighton in. And basically, Snyder just decided, like, never again. We're never going to have goalie issues again, so we need to get the best goalie on the market, who at that time was Brzezgalov. And then it became, okay, well, how do we make it work? And, you know, Carter, you know, Carter had just signed that deal, but hadn't kicked in yet. And Richards, I believe, had a no a no movement clause that was going to kick in. And they just decide that we're going to replenish our team. And the, uh, the the line that Holmgren said after the trades was that, like, I don't know if we got better, but we certainly got different or something to that extent. And um, and, and I, I mean, Holmgren was a huge Mike Richards fan. Like, I, I believe he like teared up when he was explaining having to trade him because he loved the player so much and the fact that Holmgren was able to extract that much value like those trades could have been disastrous like he that's not those aren't trades that you were guaranteed to win trading away two guys in the prime of their careers who were basically the faces of the franchise and he got back four players who all became really, really good players. And, you know, credit to Holmgren, credit to the, the scouting department that identified the right players to target. And again, it goes back to Apex Mountain because, you know, this is the same guy who a couple years later is going to identify Andrew McDonald as the guy to target at the trade deadline <laughs> and then give $30 million to. But like he was also capable of identifying that Jake Voracek was a future star and he wasn't getting, you know, the maybe the minutes and the usage that would allow him to do that in Columbus and that Wayne Simmons could be a really good goal scorer if he was using the top power play unit. Like there was this was a really, really good job done by by Holmgren just looking at those trades and it's a height that he really never reaches again. 
Yeah, I just remember how stunning it was at the time that both trades came out on the same day and just... Um, you know, it's something you very rarely see in the NHL. At the time of the trade, Richards and Carter were both 26 years old. Uh, Richards had nine years left with $5.75 million per. And I think he actually had a no-move clause that kicked in that coming summer. So yeah. I wonder how much of it was sort of motivated from getting out of that while they still could. Whereas with Carter, it was funny to look back at the fact that I didn't realize that his deal hadn't even kicked in yet. Yeah. And it was an 11-year <laughs> deal at 5.272. And, you know... If you told me at the time, I certainly think that number of volume of years for those guys would have been a problem regardless. But it's funny enough because I think Jeff Carter is actually aged significantly better than I would have thought he would have at the time, just based on his body type and his skating and sort of all the stories about Dry Island and how they were conducting themselves behind the scenes. And, and the fact that he's still, you know, he's, he's kind of the attrition has taken it's toll on his body and he certainly missed uh, a growing number of games over the past couple of years, but he's still like an effective NHL player who's capable of scoring goals. And I think if you told me back at this point in time when this trade happened, that that would still be happening, uh, you know, not a decade later, basically, I wouldn't have believed you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've said on multiple occasions that if you told me that Carter and not Richards was the one that would, that would age well, I, you know, I would have been shocked at the time, but I guess in retrospect, it kind of, kind of makes sense because, you know, Carter. I wouldn't say Carter was a finesse player because that's not fair to him. Um, but Richards definitely was a guy who, you know, his style of play, you know, always was when he was at his peak was, you know, he played bigger than his size and he was always, you know, getting in corners and making big hits and whatnot. And, you know, I always kind of wonder with Richards, you know, setting aside, you know, the, the, the rumors about partying and things like that. Like, I just don't know if his body was ever going to be able to stand up considering the way he played. I mean, that's an understatement. By 2015, he's 30 years old and he's out of the league. Like it's, yeah. um, you know, and with Carter, he scored 46, 33, and 36 goals in his final three years in Philly in his like early 20s. He got over 30 once after that. He had 32 in 16, 17. Now he had 26 and 45 games during the lockout short in season 2012, 13. So uh, that stat needs to be kind of considered that as well. But, you know, it kind of worked out, I guess, because both guys won two cups in LA in 2012 and 2014. And the Flyers sort of um, retooled their franchise on the fly and kind of gave themselves a younger facelift and still have a number of those key contributors as faces of the franchise. So it was one of those things that ultimately wound up working out for everyone involved. Yeah, yeah. And people will always say like, well, if they wouldn't have traded them, I don't know. Like, as I said, if you could, if you could, uh, if you could somehow do the Carter Richards trades without getting Brzgalov, because then you have Bobrovsky and now we know what Bobrovsky was going to turn into. So you, you have your goalie solution already on the roster that they just decided, well, you know, we're, we're not patient enough to wait for him to develop. If you could somehow do the trades without getting Briz then the Flyers are in a much better spot for the uh, you know for the rest of the decade. Yeah, but that's part of the Paul Holmgren roller coaster. So you exactly. got to take the good with the bad. Um, do you have any other what age the best, or should we move on to what age the worst? I, I'd like. I think we should move on to what age the worst. All right, here's mine. How I guess this is kind of like an unanswerable question too. But how are the Penguins so bad at finding complementary talent at this point of their franchise? Yeah, you've got yeah that. Malkin, Malkin, Crosby, Stahl, Neal, and let's put Dupuis and Kunitz in there as like their top six forwards. After that, here's the list of guys they were 
cranking out in their bottom six who were playing key roles. Tyler Kennedy, 34-year-old Matt Cook on his last legs, 38, that was a shocking number of 38-year-old Steve Sullivan minutes here playing with Crosby. I know, right? <laughs> Stunning amount of Steve Sullivan. Dustin Jeffrey, 36-year-old Richard Park, who's out of the league after this season, 35-year-old Craig Adams, Aaron Asham, Eric Tangredi, Joe Vitale, like... It's just crazy that they weren't able to find guys, especially when you spin it forward to that 2015-16 team that gets over the hump and wins the first cup for them where they've got Kessel, Hornquist, Bonino, Haglin, Rust, Sheary, and they were really able to sort of, um, I guess, figure out a better way to get guys into their system in the AHL, let them marinate, and then bring them up and be key contributors. And it's funny now, like the Penguins are considered to be this uh, one of the best franchises in the NHL at calling up Joe Schmo uh, or Mark <laughs> Donk, quote-unquote, from the AHL and having him instantly play in the top six and score 20-25 goals. And then you look back to this era and they were just so stunningly bad at it. Yeah, that, that was something I had on my what, what age the worst as well, just the Penguin supporting cast, because you're absolutely right. And I, and I think it's something that this series really does like put a spotlight on, because in the moment, I don't think... Most a lot of people realized how weak the supporting cast was because you you look at it and it's like oh well they have Crosby and Malkin and they have James Neal with his amazing season and Jordan Stahl obviously is a, a really good center and then it just kind of stopped and I think everyone just sort of were like well yeah the Penguins are great up front and they were from a from a star level standpoint but you know we talked a, a bit earlier about the Flyers depth and I think more than anything that's the reason why the Flyers win this series is because you know. This was such a bizarre series just because everyone is scoring. You know, the goalies are playing terribly. And what it boils down to is, like, who has the most viable goal scorers? And the Flyers had 10. And the Penguins had, like, four. And when you have a series where the goalies aren't stopping anything, you know, it doesn't matter that Crosby and Malkin are the two best players in the series, probably. They're, you know... Just from a sheer volume standpoint, the the team with 10 legitimate goal scorers is going to beat the team with four. And that's, I think, in a lot of ways, kind of what happened here. And this was the first series where you saw, you know, kind of going back to what I said about, you know, the legacy of this game for me from a Penguins perspective was it hinted at a lot of problems that needed to be fixed for this team to to end up getting back on the, the cup winning track. And the supporting cast is a big part of it. I mean, they needed to do a much better job of finding guys to to put around, you know, put around their, their big guns. And it took them a while to do it. And this series, I think, really showed how important that was and how devastating that was to their to their ability to, you know, not to still be successful because you have Crosby and Malkin, you're going to you're going to make the play every year you're going to be a team that teams don't want to play against the playoffs but it, it just it makes it so much easier to go on long runs and this series even though i mean you can make an argument this series is like you know at least going into the series that this is malkin at his best and arguably crosby at his best because these are probably his best years sadly they were you know cut short by concussions but you know from a you know at his peak standpoint this is pretty close and they just don't have guys around them you know aside from from neil who's great and, and stall who's who's good um that can really you know support them when they're not scoring three four goals a game charlie i'm sick of you stepping on my toes with all this malkin stuff i believe we're saving it for apex mountain don't i'm, I'm not sorry. gonna get into my malkin <laughs> thoughts my crosby thoughts we're gonna save that for apex mountain um okay. no but you're, you're you're completely right and i think you know if you're, you're someone who's aff- affiliated right now with edmonton oilers there's a lot of lessons to be learned in terms yeah. of how the penguins conducted themselves during this era um here's what else age the worst 
the Flyers just goaltending decisions. And I think, you know, there's so many layers we've already talked about to the Brisgala of contract and kind of how it was tied into everything. You can't just view it in a vacuum. But, you know, during this era, the Flyers had this obsession with getting that number one goalie and paying and doing it at whatever price necessary. And so they trade a couple picks to get Brisgala's rights. They sign him. But the weird thing to me is, before this happens, so in 2009-10, they make the Stanley Cup final with, like, just this ragtag group of, like, it was Brian Boucher and Michael Layton, Michael Layton. And, and so on and so forth. In 2010-11, they have a 22-year-old Sergei Bobrovsky, who in 54 games has a 915 save percentage and a plus 12 goal saved above expected. And then that would make this Flyers team, if anything, realize how you would think how sort of... um not volatile the position is, but how sort of uh, overrated it can be in terms of having that name brand number one guy when you've had the success they've had, just kind of inserting and plugging and playing guys. And I guess maybe that sort of took its mental toll on them where they were just sick of that kind of uncertainty and that sort of revolving door and spinning carousel. But, you know, Brizgalov, funny enough, maybe this is what age the best or the worst, but it didn't wind up working out for them. They wind up trading Bobrovsky shortly thereafter. And then basically up until this point now, when they have Carter Hart uh, beyond a, a brief Steve Mason cameo there. Like it just, that revolving door and net wound up um, recurring for them for the better part of the decade ahead. And so it, it's, it's funny to see how all that played out now that we have the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. And you hit the nail right on the head with regards to like the, the summer before kind of being the last straw, because you're absolutely right. The flyers for years, you know, kind of went with that, you know, stopgap type of approach. And it was funny because, I mean, I think it still absolutely exists in the analytics community, but it was really prevalent back then was just the idea that, like, you don't spend money on goalies. You know, you just, uh, you know, you, you just kind of go with one guy for a year and you pick and choose and whatnot. And then you, you, because goalies are so, you know, they're so fickle in terms of year over year production. And the Flyers, did that for years they you know they had marty Biron a few years before this obviously they had the latent run um you know they they had roman check monic in the 2000s like they definitely were the kind of team that would only would have a new goalie every couple years and they would just try to win on the strength of the the depth of the rest of their roster but that that playoff run in 2011 was the last straw for for ed snyder and that was when you know it's it's kind of it is ironic and it's one of those like your tragic ironies where you know, for years they tried throwing guys out there who were probably weren't as good as they sold them to be. And then they finally find the guy in Bobrovsky who actually is as good as they sold him to be. And that was the time. They finally had him. And that was the time when they it was like the last straw, like we can't do this anymore. Like you had him. All you had to do was just wait. And you had him, but instead that was the moment when you lost your mind and were like, no, we need to break our, our philosophy of kind of just picking goalies up on the fly and we need to get the guy. And obviously Briz didn't work out and obviously Bob did. Well, and Briz last two years there and then they buy him out and they're still paying him to this day. And obviously not up against their cap, but it's funny. I guess it worked out so poorly that I'm not sure if the league was already headed this way, but just before the Bobrovsky contract with Florida this past summer, the examples of high-priced goalies switching team and unrestricted free agency was just so minimal, right? Like, I was looking for examples, and it was Ben Bishop with the Stars, although it was a pretty low AAV, just a bunch of years on the deal. It was like Scott Darling with the Hurricanes, James Reimer with the Panthers, 
like Yarrow Halak with the Islanders. There's very few examples. It's a lot of those are like three or four year deals. It's very uh, few sort of significant financial commitments to goalie switching teams. And I wonder how much of that was just it working out so badly for the Flyers and Bobrov and Briskalov that they got scared off from it and, and didn't want that albatross on their hands. And how much of it was just the league heading that way naturally, anyways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'll be fascinated. I mean, who knows how the offseason is going to look, but I'll be really fascinated to see what kind of deal Braden Holpe gets this summer because, I mean, he's obviously the kind of guy with pedigree. You know, he's won a cup, but he's he's trending downwards. So I'll be extremely curious. He'll be a nice case study to see just how, you know, the league views um, you know, views goalies in in the modern day because he's the kind of guy where, you know, if he hit if he hit the market the same time Briz did, I guarantee you he probably gets, you know, a seven, eight, nine-year deal. All right. Um, what else age the worst for you? Okay. Th- this to me was number one. What age the worst? Oh my God. The Flyers defense. Like it, somehow I think in, in the moment we knew it was bad, but we didn't quite realize just how bad it was. So in game three, team gets kicked out um, for fighting Chris Letang. And that leaves for the rest of the game for the Flyers. That leaves them with Braden Coburn, Matt Carl, Nicholas Grossman, who wasn't very good to begin with, but played hurt in the series. Mm. Andreas Lilia and Pavel Kubina. So going through these guys, like Coburn has a decent career the rest of this decade with he ends up getting traded by the Flyers to Tampa and he turns himself into kind of like a useful role playing defenseman. But he's like the clear number one here with team in and out. And, you know, Pierre was praising him up and down for taking all the minutes like he was not a number one defenseman. He really wasn't even a top pair defenseman. Then you have Matt Carl, who actually was very good for the Flyers, but he then goes to Tampa after the series and immediately falls off a cliff. Like his his underlying numbers go in the toilet the very next season, to the point where like he just becomes an albatross for uh, for Tampa. Uh, Lilia has one more year, one more really bad year, and then is done. Grossman was really bad the rest of his tenure in Philadelphia. Kubina is done after the series. Like he doesn't play in the NHL ever again. And those are the five guys that the Flyers roll out there to try to hold down. You know forty. 45 plus minutes in game three of a playoff series. And it's just mind boggling to me that they got away with it. Yeah. Timonen being booted out of this game and he was still really good at this time and he was playing a lot, yeah. but he was kind of long in the tooth as well, certainly. And, and they're relying on him a ton when he gets, I mean, even while he was still playing in games one and two, like Brian Coburn is playing in the, in the mid twenties per yeah. game. Um, in fact, I like, I think like, yeah, they're relying, you know, Grossman, um, gets talked about Pierre Maguire in this series like he's Nicholas Lidstrom like he's like yeah right <laughs> he's spotlighting him in game one like oh the, the Penguins are really going after Grossman here he's banged up they're like a they smell blood in the water and, and then it goes to the point where during one of those coaches interviews during the game uh in game one Pierre Maguire like specifically asks Dan Bilesma if their if their game plan is to target Nicholas Grossman physically it's like how is this the main talking point or storyline. It's like, then we got to really target Nicholas Grossman here. The <laughs> amount of play he got in hindsight was, was stunning. So yeah, you're right. I think it, it certainly, uh, aged poorly, but they got away with it. I guess it just speaks to how good their forwards were that they were able to patch it up. And funny enough, you spin it forward. However many years, like look at that blue line, the penguins, won the cup with where it was like Ron Hainsey was yeah. their number one defenseman. So I, I don't think there's like a lesson to be learned there that defensemen are overrated, but I guess when your forwards are as good as uh, those specific teams were, you can kind of 
work 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 around it or sort of patch it up and make it work with guys who aren't typically that good. Yeah, I mean, I think the lesson here with regards to the Flyers is just that you know, looking at this defense, it explains why the Flyers fell apart the rest of this decade because they just had no one and they had no prospects really coming, and that's why they had to rebuild their entire pipeline. You 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 draft Travis Sanheim, you draft Ivan Provorov, um, you, you dig up Phil Myers, you you would you would draft it. Um, I, I guess Ghost. Because Ghost gets drafted, I guess, a couple months after this, because he's 2012. Um, but it took time. It took time to rebuild this defense. And, you know, you have all these great forwards, and they lose some of them. You know, they lose JBR, they lose Yager in the offseason. Briere starts falling off the next season. But you have all these great forwards that, that, you, that you compiled, and you just couldn't take full advantage of them because the defense was just so bad. And watching watching this series, it really hammers home just how bad this defense was on paper. And it hammers home exactly why they went after Suter and exactly why they uh, you know they tried to get Weber. You know, it wasn't just the it wasn't just the we need a number one defenseman. It was just our defense is awful and we <laughs> really need to, to improve it. And they just never really could. I mean, part of that was because they were they were going after the wrong people, like Andrew McDonald. But part of that is just because it's really hard to to rebuild a defense core if you're not home growing it. And they eventually did rebuild it, but it took years, years, and years of of drafting and developing to get to that point. Complaining about officiating is like the lowest hanging fruit, in my opinion. But I thought it was particularly notable how bad the officiating was in these first three games, just rewatching it. Uh, in game one, it's funny because on my most recent rewatchable, I was talking with Drance about how um, the coaches' challenges and how offside are sort of reviewed consistently in today's game has really changed my, it's kind of conditioned me similar to like flags in football where something great happens and you're just waiting for it to get called back and, and you, you kind of like, you can't emotionally get invested in it because you're not sure if it's actually going to count and stick. And so, um, I kind of don't love that part of it, but at the same time you watch this and like Danny Breer's offside goal in game one is so egregious. It's not as bad as the Matt Duchesne one, but it is really bad to the point that Pierre Maguire is like actually calling out the referees for how they missed it. And yeah. They make some decisions, I mean, beyond just like the penalty calls themselves. And I think this is kind of a tough um, series to appreciate because it was very physical. But in game three, when the game just is out of hand, I think it's already 7-4 at that point. James Neal completely launches himself at Sean Couturier. And yeah. the puck is nowhere in sight. He It's like the definition of a predatory hit just for no reason. Leaves his feet, hits him. Sean Couturier has to get helped off the ice. The referees not only don't give James Neal any sort of punishment for it, but he stays on the ice for the ensuing shift. And as the play proceeds, he goes down the ice and takes another gratuitous shot at Claude Giroux's head to the point where Giroux kind of like stumbles off the ice and loses his balance. And you wonder what happened there. And the refs are like, okay, like, you know, this is getting out of hand. And the play stops. There's a couple fights. And instead of just tossing James Neal and just being like, this game's over, we need to get control of the situation, they send James Neal to the penalty box for a two-minute line. Yeah. And so he go, he's on the bank, Penguins bench at this point, and so he has to do this kind of walk of shame to get to the penalty box. In the meantime, 
that exposes him to Wayne Simmons going after him, which leads to this another sort of complete line brawl between these teams where Craig Adams fights Hartnell and pulls his hair. And like Hartnell has a 37 goal season here and he's just having this like unnecessary fight with Craig Adams because the referees just couldn't handle the situation. And fortunately, nothing horrible happened and no one got hurt from it. But just their entire handling of that, like it escalated so quickly for no reason just because they refused to do the right thing initially and just toss Neil because it was clear that he had like blood in his eyes. Well, here we are with Simmons and Neil. See, this is why they should have just given Neil 10. Why would they just expose him to go across the ice? Now Hartnell's there. And now Crosby's grabbing on to Hartnell. This, is, this was all started. There was no need to do this with Neil. This is where I think the officials are huge. Big time. Yeah, yeah, this, I, I think this kind of goes hand in hand with my last what age the worst thing was just, just how vicious this game was. Like, this was a, this was a vicious game and like, it's fun to, to see, you know, these line brawls and kind of the, the craziness and the shenanigans, but like, there's some really vicious plays in this game. Like, you have the, uh, you have the Aaron Asham cross check to, to Braden Shen's neck and then he's punching him while he's on the ice. You have the, the Neil jumping into Couturier thing. Um, you have the, the elbow, uh, to uh, to Drew's head. I mean, you have some really vicious plays that, like, I mean, I don't think they ever they ever were good. But even now, just what we know about concussions, they they really age poorly. And uh, going kind of on that same note, like one thing that aged very poorly for me rewatching this is like how quickly the guys who get hit come back. Yeah. Like Braden Shen is on the ice for a significant period of time. He's back three minutes later. Like Sean Couturier returns before the end of the line brawl. Like he's back on the bench while everyone's still fighting. Giroux never leaves. Like Giroux, as you said, stumbles. He never, I don't think he ever got checked out for this. And like knowing what we know about concussions, that aged extremely poorly because all those guys should have been sent to the quiet room for an extended period of time. Like who knows if they all got concussed? It's possible, but they were back out there. So I can't imagine like they were they were checked out even if they weren't concussed i can't imagine they were checked out as you know as well as they probably should have been so that aged really poorly and it goes hand in hand with your criticism of the officiating because you know i don't know if a lot of those plays happen if the officials have a better handle on the game and, and the, the the neil on couturier one is the classic like how do you not get him out of the game there i, I don't know I, I guess they all missed it but how do you miss that and that was mind-boggling to me um all right let's uh let's go to tsn turning point you know this game gets out of hand eventually but um i'd say with eight minutes left in the first it's, it's early on but the there's a big brawl there where the flyers are already up 3-1 at this point and um crosby and Giroux go at it and they have a fight and nothing really happens. Crosby actually lands like a sneaky good up, uppercut. Giroux is kind of in the grasp of the referees, though. But Latang and Timonen go at it. And I completely forgot that both guys just got tossed at this point. It's yeah. funny comparing that to how sort of uh, carefree they were with the whole Neil incident. Like at this point, they, they could tell that something bad was happening. And they're just like, we're going to get both these guys out of the game. And they're unequivocally the team's number one defenseman. And they're just gone yeah. eight, <laughs> like 12 minutes in. So... That was kind of a turning point because uh, you, you could sort of view it as like, oh, the Penguins could make a little bit of a comeback here, and they actually did and kept it close before it got out of hand. Um, is there a sort of turning point where this game completely swings for you where um, in one direction or another? 
So I, I, I know exactly what sequence you're talking about. I actually have that as, um, as a sequence we're going to talk about in a second, but I, I think it could fit for both. To me, the turning point of this game is uh, it's the Flyers' first goal. It's, it's Talbot shorthanded because the Flyers go down one nothing in this game. And then they go on the, um, and then Pittsburgh goes in the power play. And they have an opportunity here to go up 2 nothing. And Talbot gets this, this goal, the shorthanded goal, and it is an unbelievably bad goal that Flurry allows. Like, Drew takes a shot, it comes back out, Talbot, like, flutters a backhander while he's falling, and Flurry tries to cover it with his glove and just misses the puck. Like, he literally just misses the puck, which isn't going that fast, and it skitters behind him. Flurry dives back, doesn't get it. So, the score's tied on a shorthanded goal, and then right after that, like, the goal happens, and then a brawl kicks off. So, to me, like, that's the moment where, number one, you find out that Flurry just doesn't have it. Number two, the score is tied. Number three, the game is already devolving into the war that it would become. Like, I think it starts because, and it's funny, I I, I honestly had forgotten that Matt Niskin was on this, this Penguins team in this series. It's funny mm-hmm. because he's a flyer now. But he's on top of Talbot after Talbot scores. And Drew comes in and blasts Niskanen because Niskanen is still on top of Talbot. And I'm convinced re-watching this that Matt Niskanen was not, like, being a jerk to Talbot. He was just so shocked that Flurry let that in that he just kind of was stunned and was already on top of Talbot from knocking him over in the first place. And then Drew comes in and blasts Niskanen, and that starts this big brawl. You have, like, Matt Carl versus Matt Cook, and yep. Drew fights Niskanen. I, I kind of wonder if, like, that was, that was something that they ever talked about when Niskanen got traded to the Flyers that last summer but uh that to me is just the turning point because you know the Flyers tie this game and in the process start to turn this game into just the the bonkers fight fest that it's inevitably going to be like after this Latang takes a dumb cross-checking penalty that ultimately turns into a two-man advantage that gives the Flyers a lead and like this was in my mind the start of just this game just turning into just really a total shit show yeah, I've got that as my most rewatchable sequence, so I guess we're on the same page. Okay. It's with 13. So we just, we just flip-flop them, basically, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's 13-23 left in the first, and um, the Penguins are up 1-0 one, one after a bad Jordan Stahl goal. And they have the power play, and they just completely just self-combust. The, the Giroux and Talbot create that shorthanded goal, makes a 1-1, one, one. immediately a ball breaks out, and then within five minutes, it's 3-1 Flyers. Yeah. I think I'd say probably the first period... It's just the most rewatchable sequence. You've got six goals, yeah. 72 penalty minutes, and 31 shots on goal. So it's certainly not a low in terms of action value. Like the full game on YouTube is two hours and 24 minutes, and the first period alone takes up an hour. So there's a, there's a lot of stoppages, <laughs> but there's also a lot of just complete mayhem. And I guess the first period does the best job of, of uh, sort of encapsulating what this game's all about. Yeah, and I've, it's funny, you know, like I had I had the Talbot goal as the turning point. I had the, the line brawl at seven fifty eight as the most rewatchable, and we basically just just flip flop them. I it's like I just feel like that that first goal is the turning point because the game could have theoretically gotten out of hand in the Penguins' favor, and that completely turns it. But like that that line brawl at seven fifty eight, you, you you talked about it a little bit earlier. Like the the one part that just will always crack me up like even just just as a hockey fan is like it's it starts out with the 
you know, just with a post whistle scrum, like uh, Dupuis takes an extra, extra, extra whack at Briz, which like whatever, it's playoff hockey, that's what happens. You know, the, they're all fighting, and then out of nowhere, it gets back going again. And then after it finally dies down, they show what sparked it, and what sparked it getting back going is Crosby pushing Voracek's glove away from him when he tries yep. to go pick it up. And that's just like one of those like incredible iconic hockey moments where it's like Crosby, what are you doing? Uh, Crosby knocks the glove away from Voracek. Giroux doesn't like it. Timonen doesn't like it. Can't fault the Flyers there. They're standing up for their guy. And then Giroux gets his guy. Timonen gets the tang. And there we go. But you know, you know what? I will I will say um, it was childish. But I loved it because you so rarely it was see hilarious. Like, Sidney Crosby being a human being. You know what I mean? Like he's such a sort of uh, emotionless robot at times for the better. Like it's what it's what's kind of made him special. But for him to sort of lose it in that moment and then he fights, he tries to fight Timonen and then Giroux steps in and they have a bit of a tussle. And then late in the third, after all of that Neil stuff transpired, uh, Braden Shen tries to fight Crosby or he asks him if he wants to fight and like the camera zooms in and Crosby's just like hell no I'm not fighting you and it's like it, it's just funny <laughs> to see that like we've had so few instances over his career so far of Sidney Crosby like showing emotion and just being a regular guy who lets the moment get the best of him so in that moment I was like oh like he's just being kind of like a he's being a dick there and, and I just kind of enjoyed it. it was I thought it was pretty funny oh I mean it's hilarious and like you know coming from someone who during the series was just like purely on the like the fan side and not the media side i mean i was livid at the time but in retrospect like it is just really funny it's a really funny sequence and it's just so as you said so out of character for crosby that makes it even funnier the one thing about this too that like that does crack me up watching it again is you know he gets into the 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 fight with jeru after after the 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 pushing of Voracek's glove and there's a part where like Crosby is just like screaming curses at Giroux and it's like clearly very angry and then there's like a smash cut to Giroux and Giroux just has this big smile on his face and you can tell that like in that moment Giroux knew that like we are under his skin that this is like this is exactly what we wanted to do he's the best player in the world and he's thinking more about pushing gloves than he is about coming back from this this three one deficit and it was just like it was the classic example of you know i think a lot of times we in the media tend to you know try to play amateur psychologists and put ourselves in the mind of players of like man you know they're they're unraveling they've lost their composure this is a time where like the penguins absolutely lost their composure yeah. and it's just while re-watching that and seeing Giroux just smile in a crosby was just like Giroux knew that they had lost their composure and he was just reveling in it i mean we still haven't we're kind of dance around the Giroux Crosby thing. I think, um, you know, it's clear that Giroux is the best player in this series. I think he has, he has the hat trick in the six points in game two. He has 14 points, I believe in the, in the six games in the series. But I think it was kind of a reminder of, um, why it's dangerous to make like wide sweeping statements after one playoff series or one playoff yeah. run. Um, because, Prior to, uh, unlike contrary, uh, contrary to uh, popular belief, uh, Claude Giroux did not take the baton from Sidney Crosby as the best player in the world after this series. <laughs> yeah, that probably could fit in like the what age the worst 
uh, yeah. just that that com- that comment from from Laviolette that he had a uh, you know that he had become he was the best player in in the world because obviously he wasn't and this is this is Claude Giroux like at his absolute best and he definitely outplays Crosby in the series but yeah that that aged poorly and that's something that you know in some ways I almost wonder if over the long term that kind of hurt Giroux because it sort of kind of became a joke of like haha best player in the world Claude Giroux which he wasn't but he was still an amazing player and I think in some corners of the hockey world like that Giroux almost just became a stand-in for this idea of like let's not overreact to a good series whereas in reality like Giroux is still one of the best players of this decade he's not the best but he's he's top 10 and I think that whole best player in the world thing almost allows people, some people, to almost think of it as this big joke that Claude Giroux is an elite player, where he is this elite player. He's just not a Sidney Crosby. Yeah, well, we spent a lot of time at this point. I guess it's like it's boring to just like we're going to get into this with McDavid over the next couple of years. I feel like if we haven't already, we've already seen it with like the hard trophy discussions where we tried to find guys who are more deserving than him because he didn't make the playoffs. And it's just boring to have one guy viewed universally as the best player in the world and have no debates about it. So I get it. Like it kind of runs counterintuitive to how the hockey world and sports and the online discussion works. But we spent so much time in this era, whether it was after this series with Drew. Um, I talked with Drance on my most recent show, like for years there, people were trying to make Taves out as the best player in the world because of all the success that the Blackhawks had had in the playoffs. And I guess kind of just the, the cream eventually rose to the top with Crosby where it took a couple of years. He had injuries. The team flamed out early in the playoffs. But you look back at it now and it's so funny remembering in hindsight these conversations that like legitimately were happening in the hockey world about where Crosby was compared to others. And after every year, depending on how the playoffs would go, we'd try to position some new center as the best player in the world and better than Crosby. And then years later, it wound up being not the case, obviously. Yeah, and I mean, Flyers fans obviously reveled in this at the time, this idea that Drew was better than Crosby. And Drew had an amazing year this year. I mean, he was fantastic. But it's just, in retrospect, you know, I I guarantee you if if it was a Penguins a Penguins writer breaking down the series like the whole Drew is the best player in the world thing absolutely would have been like you know his or her first thing about you know what age the worst um because it did age very poorly but as I said it's not like Drew wasn't a great player he just wasn't like the defining player of this era and that became abundantly clear over the the, the following next couple of years um biggest heat check performance this is a tough one because in this particular game uh I wouldn't say there was an obvious one. Like, I just... Claude Giroux, for game two, obviously, he has a great game here. He has a couple points. He has a goal. Um, But, you know, not necessarily, like, a super standout performance. Was there anyone that really stood out to you as, like, just this guy took his game to a next level in in this particular game? Yeah, not really. I mean, I think Giroux, actually, it's funny, going back through... Um, the first three games, you know, he obviously Drew has the the massive uh, three goal, three assist game, sets the franchise record for most points in a playoff game in game two. But in terms of like shift over shift impact, I was actually I thought he he looked better in game three. I thought he mm-hmm. was like some of the plays he was making, some of the passes he was making. There's one play where like he's got a guy like on top of him in the neutral zone. He still sets up the, this pass to set up a teammate like and Pierre like loses his mind of how good it was. Like he was just making these incredible plays plays like they were nothing and it reminds you like drew is still a really good player but he's not as physically 
like he's not as fast as he was back back in in this series. He he doesn't he doesn't play as physical as he did in this series. Like he's obviously gotten older, and there's things that he can't do that he could do when he was you know 22, 23, 24 years old. And it just kind of watching this game in particular reminded me of like just how good peak physical Claude Giroux was. If we're talking about heat check performance, like the one the one guy I had in terms of like who did the most with the least in this in this game in particular, like Matt Reed scores two goals. Yep. And and that kind of came out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good one. I think uh Max Talbot also he Max Talbot I think leads the team and like he plays like twenty two minutes or something in this game. Yeah, yeah, because well, like I mean, so many people went in the penalty box, and you know, Drew has five minutes for fighting. Talbot has he has the big goal in the beginning, and then he chips in one at the end. Um, Talbot had a real good year this year. You know, they signed him to a five year deal. That was another one of like the Holmgren. Okay, that was that was bizarre, but he goes mm-hmm. and takes Max Talbot, who at the time was most known for uh, I believe it was the twenty two thousand nine playoffs. Yep. The Flyers yep, played the yeah, Penguins. Exactly. The, yeah, play the. Well, we no. Well, no. I'm even talking about just from a oh, Flyers okay. perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in that first round, the Flyers played the Penguins, and Talbot gets into a fight with the Flyers up in in the game that ultimately clinched the series for the Penguins, and Talbot gets crushed in the fight, gets killed, and then he gets up and does the the shh thing to the crowd. And then immediately, like, the game changes and the Penguins come back and win. And because of that, Flyers fans hated Max Talbot. So Paul Holmgren goes and signs him. And then Talbot, I think, gets 19 goals that year. So, like, he was, like, a legitimately viable third liner on this team. Matt Reed is just fascinating to me because he gets signed out of a Minji State. He's an undrafted free agent. He's 25 years old. And he leads the league in goals for rookies, and he has two goals in this game. Like that was very much an out of nowhere type of uh, type of performance. Not really with the game because he was good all year, but definitely right. with regards to like no one expected Matt Reed to be this useful considering where he came from. Well, when I did the rewatch of uh, Red Wings Penguins two thousand nine with Craig Custins, we had Max Talbot as our biggest heat check performance. So maybe uh, his entire career at this point was just a heat check performance. Um, <laughs> Biggest that guy, man. There's you mentioned the Flyers D. I had them like Pavel Kubina, Nick Grossman, Andreas Lilia. You're just like, oh, I remember all these names from the past. I can't believe they're playing such yeah. big roles. The Penguins supporting cast. I mean, seriously, like the amount of Steve Sullivan going on is is just ludicrous. Like how big of a role he was playing at this stage of his career with how much he had left in the tank. I think he had a decent season playing with Crosby on the second line with and Dupuy as well. But um. It really kind of uh, highlighted the underlying issues for this Penguins team that they were relying on him that much. Yeah, yeah, I was shocked to see as much of, of Steve Sullivan as I did. You know, the the guy who I had for this, and we talked about him a little earlier, is just like you look at the Flyers' forward court, and it's so good. And again, we talked about how they didn't have JVR in in this game, and then they're throwing Zach Ronaldo out. Oh, like, yeah. how is Zach Ronaldo on this team? It's just it's mind boggling because like he's not like he's barely an NHL caliber player and he's going out there for shifts with Sean Couturier. It's just it's one of those things you look back and you're like, how did they justify this to themselves? He had 232 penalty minutes in 66 games this year in the regular season and then 48 in five playoff games. So, yeah, I mean, it was weird because this was the era where. It wasn't in the postseason, but during the regular season, the Flyers used Jody Shelley for 30 games. They used Tom Sestito yeah. for 14 games. They used Ronaldo for 66. Like, there was much more of that element of having these guys out there to play six to eight minutes and fight. But it was stunning to see how big of a role Ronaldo was playing 
throughout this entire year alongside Kachuri. And the fact that he's still in the league in 2020 playing for the Flames is stunning. So yeah, I think Ronaldo is a really good choice for uh, for the biggest that guy. Yeah, it's just, as I said, you know, he was always a, a Laviolette guy. Laviolette always loved him. but And it's not like he was getting that many minutes in this series. Like, in this game, he gets 524. And I think at the end, was it in the, at the end of the game, in the third period, like, after that line brawl we were talking about with, uh, with Hartnell getting his hair pulled, like, Ronaldo tries to go out and, and start something. And finally, the refs, like, I guess, finally, they had had enough. And they're just like, get the hell out of here. Like, we're, we're done with this. And that was just, like, classic Ronaldo. Um. Doc and Eddie's commentary corner. So we get a two-man booth here of, uh, yeah. of Doc Emmerich, and then Pierre Maguire is between the bench. Um, in Game 2, we got Kenny Albert instead of Doc Emmerich, and, and I wish we had gotten him for this Game 3 because Kenny Albert's one of my most underrated play-by-play guys in the league. But um, we get peak, 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 peak Pierre Maguire in this game. He refers to whatever the arena was called at the time as a bubbling cauldron of animosity. At one point, he tells us that he received a text message from Wayne Gretzky that was talking yes. about Claude Giroux's greatness. About Giroux. Uh, what, yeah. what, do you, what, do you put, what are you putting the odds of that act, story actually being true? Like 5%? <laughs> like there's no way Wayne Gretzky's texting Pierre Maguire just randomly about Claude Giroux. Like he makes it seem like they're like text buddies that talk all the time. He's like, yeah, my buddy Wayne just messaged me the other day. And, and um, you know, he told me like, hey, watch for that Claude Giroux guy. He's pretty good. Like this is just that, that did not happen. It was it was so funny. I, I laughed out loud when I uh, when I heard him drop that tidbit. Um, I think the 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 one I the one that cracked me up the most just because it's so cheesy is uh, after after the second goal by Pittsburgh, um, the James Neal scores. Pierre drops a how do you spell relief? N E A L Neal, and I died. I was like, that is so so cheesy. It is amazing. Um, but you know, after after kind of giving giving Pierre some crap for that, I will say this: I was I was surprised at how much because I'm like not a big Pierre fan. Mm-hmm. I was surprised at how much I liked his commentary in this game. Yep. Um, especially because he's not like he's the color guy, and he's the color guy between the boards because they don't have the the two man team up in the up in the booth. And he actually like he has some really really good insights here. Um, there's one part where. Um, and this was actually, I thought, like legitimately a really good call. Um, and it was, I believe it was right after Giroux scores the goal uh, off of what was a fantastic puck protection play by Yager, uh, who somehow we haven't talked about, even though it's Yarmir Yager <laughs> on the Flyers against the Penguins in a playoff series, which yep. shows just how crazy the series was. But the call, he goes, strength, skill, just overpowering will. The will of the Flyers has been exceptional this whole series. And like, that's like a really good, eloquent call. Hmm. And the fact that he does that while he's between the boards like that's really good and i I mean i imagine he's like staring at a small screen to watch replays because he's not up in the booth and he's having you know players screaming in his ear because these teams hated each other and like he does a really good job considering what i imagine is very difficult circumstances like i was i i've had one one of my co-hosts on on bsh radio kelly hinkle she said for years that she thinks that pierre is pierre's in the wrong role that like all the people that hate Pierre, like they, they they get annoyed with like the constant references to junior hockey and just this feeling like Pierre always seems like he has to show that he's he knows more than everybody else. Right. But like, you know, I almost wonder if like color commentary might be a better role for Pierre wa- after watching game three, because I liked most of what he was saying. And I thought he did a pretty good job, especially considering how difficult it must have been, because you don't have like 
it's, it's I'm sure it's much easier to have chemistry with a play-by-play guy when you're standing right next to the play-by-play guy. Yeah. And he's not anywhere near him, and he does a pretty good job. Well, in the context here, too, I, I can't imagine how much swearing was going on at ice level with Wendy's two teams, so he must have been working yeah. the mute button very aggressively. Um, yeah, I noticed, too, that he, like, if you think about his calls these days, he's so buddy-buddy with everyone. It really feels like he's very um, reluctant to actually be critical of anyone because he clearly wants to maintain those relationships and friendships, and he doesn't want to come off as, as just completely destroying someone. In this game, like, he is just roasting Marc-Andre Fleury. I I think at one point yeah. even i forget which goal flurry gives up but then like on the ensuing shift he kind of makes a sh- shaky save that gives off a rebound and doc emmerich asks him like oh do you think uh do you think flurry stabilized now after he makes that save and pierre mcguire's just like no that was very shaky and he goes <laughs> on this like diatribe about how shaky flurry looks out there and and i appreciate it i think we do need more of that he, although he was uh don't worry about it, he was vintage pierre because towards the end of the game, he starts talking about Eric Wellwood. And he talks about the Windsor Spitfires. He talks about Taylor Hall and Adam Henrique and the Memorial Cup. And so he uh, he really kind of shows off all of his Pierre Maguire-ness in this game with all that stuff. But what I actually noticed that was funny to me was, you remember the, uh, the Mark Spector column about the 200 hockey men? Uh, yeah, talking yeah, about Hall and, and Adam Larson. I think this was the origin of 200 hockey men, because at one point, Doc Emmerich says that on a March 26th issue of Sports Illustrated, 200 players were polled on the question of whether the NHL should ban fighting. Oh, jeez. One of them said yes. 199 of them said no. And so I think that was the uh, I think that was the origin of 200 hockey men, the, the poll of 200 hockey players about asking if, uh, if, if fighting should be banned. Oh man, yeah, I didn't think of that, but that that would be fascinating if that was actually what what inspired uh, the that classic Spectre tweet. Because yeah, I, I I remember that, and that was one of those things where like as I heard it, you know, you almost it, it's hard to push this like years in the future, even where we are today. But I almost wonder if like if we were to go back and watch this in twenty years, if that's a call that we're, we would say age the worst. Like, you know, the, the idea that like fighting is always going to be this essential part of hockey. Like, I kind of wonder if in 20 years, you know, there's the next round of rewatchables, whether you're doing it or whether it's much younger people than, than we will be at that point in, in time doing it. And they're like, man, like you, know, you have the commentator basically acting like fighting is always going to be huge in hockey. And, you know, we know now that, it, that it's not because I mean, I don't know if I don't know if fighting is ever going to be completely removed from the game, but you know, we're certainly trending in the direction of it happening less and less. So I wonder in 20 years if that's going to be one of those those calls that is talked about as you know aging the worst i think yeah it's going to change i think about it's been less than a decade and we're horrified looking at how nonchalant the flyers are with claude Giroux like tripping over himself after he gets hit in the head and staying in the game and and that would never it still happens unfortunately in today's game but we're much more like aware and critical of it at the time so which is compared to then that's something i certainly was not thinking about myself um most unanswerable questions we've already gotten into a lot of them for me it was like how are the penguins so bad at finding complimentary talent why the flyers did certain things the summer before and the summer after was there anything lingering from this uh that kind of fits that bill for you yeah so this was one that uh that i thought i i thought of this watching when i when i first went through these i watched game three Uh, i watched it twice and then i went back and i watched games one and two uh yesterday but the one that kept popping up in my head, just especially Game Three, was what this series, and this is both both like 
the games and then all the other stuff that was happening between the whistles. What this series might have been like if Chris Pronger had played in it. Because to me, like this is this is a Chris Pronger series. Like he was just he, like his antics and his physicality and his willingness to mix to mix up and make big hits and do like dirty plays and stuff. Like I, I can't imagine how crazy this series would have been if you stick Chris Pronger in it. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, okay, Apex Mountain. I'm ready. I'm ready to have uh, conversations about Malkin and Crosby. But I want to start with Giroux actually here because I think this is pretty clearly his apex. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. In 2017-18, he has that resurgence season playing mostly on the wing with Couturier just in terms of his point production. He reaches career highs and um, he probably should have gotten a hard vote, but it was just such a loaded class. But at this point of his career, just rewatching the physical abilities he had in terms of just dancing with a puck through the neutral zone, how um, spry he still looks to go along with the vision and the actual uh, talent with the puck on his stick. I think it's that perfect nexus for him between his two forms, right? Where he still has kind of that grinder mentality that a lot of young players have early in their career when they're trying to assert themselves and move up the lineup where he's still killing penalties at this point i think in this season he averages like two and a half minutes per game on the penalty kill for them and in this series him and talbot like single-handedly create at least three or four shorthanded goals for them that completely swing the momentum in these games but he's obviously got that high-end talent as well where they're using him in all the high leverage scoring situations as well so it's it's a really fascinating dynamic and conversation for me about what happens with players in terms of their career arcs it's similar to in baseball for example like when you see young players come into the league they generally steal a ton of bases kind of to show that they can do it but also because I guess they're at that like physical apex of theirs. And then as they're in the league for longer, they stop running and they start focusing more on the power game and hitting as many home runs as they can. And that happens in the NHL a lot where young players come into the league and they are killing penalties. They're kind of grinding more. They're sort of resembling all of those traits. But then I guess at some point, whether it's they physically deteriorate or that's a preservation tactic or they're just so valuable to their team offensively in terms of using them in the high leverage situations where they can't afford to have them out there killing penalties anymore so they're preserving them and it kind of takes a bit of the fun out of it for me yeah yeah i think uh i mean drew does still kill penalties for the flyers obviously he's now more of like a like a face-off guy because mm-hmm. he's so good at it and he can still you know kill penalties with the best of them when he does but a lot of it is as you said just just self-preservation but yeah drew was he was great this whole season, but this series, like he was just on an entirely different level. And you talk about, you know, the, the grinder aspects to his game, which kind of have taken a backseat as he's gotten older, I think in a lot of ways from a self-preservation standpoint, but you know, we didn't talk, we don't talk about how the series ends um, because we talked a lot about games one through three, but you know, game six, like the, the, the shift Giroux has to start game six, which is the game that the Flyers clinched the series where, you know, he absolutely blows up Sidney Crosby in the neutral zone. And then he comes through uh, the middle of the ice, comes through the neutral zone like shortly thereafter and just rips a shot by Flurry to give the Flyers a one nothing lead You know, early in the game. They end up winning 5-1. And that was just like the classic early career Claude Giroux of... You know, he had the ability to just be relentless in, in puck battles and was willing to throw his weight around despite the fact that he's a small guy. But he also had this incredible, incredible skill level as well, which he still has. Um, and that's just a moment like I think 
for most people, most Flyers fans, that's like the the, the quintessential Claude Giroux moment, like the moment that people will, will always remember about him, um, even more so, I think, than his uh, his game winner in Game 3 of the Cup Final in, in 2010. But, you know, it's interesting with Giroux because, you know, comparing him, say, to somebody like Crosby, where, you know, Crosby comes in and, you know, he was kind of designated as the next superstar like everybody knew he was going to be a star he comes in he's immediately like in the top six getting those minutes like drew was not supposed to be as good as he ended up becoming you know he's the he's he's not taking the top 20 of his draft you know he spends two years his his full two years in, in in junior hockey uh in the queue doesn't even make the flyers out of his first post you know junior eligible training camp um, and then kind of just slowly moves up the lineup and doesn't really turn into like Claude Giroux until the season before this, which was the year I think he had like 76 or 77 points in, 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 a, in a full season. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, he kind of at this point still had that, um, you know, that like mentality of like being a third liner almost because that's kind of what he was for the first couple years of his career. And it took a while, I think, for him to kind of get in his head that like, you know, maybe I don't, you know, sell myself out physically on every shift anymore because I'm the first line center and I'm the team's best player and I can't do that anymore. But at this point, you know, he still has that mentality because he's not that far removed from that stage of his career, but he also has developed the skills that make him, you know, an elite player. So this was a really fun part of Drew's career to watch. I can tell you that. Yeah, he's so special on the penalty kill here where like they send out, Laviolette sends out him and Talbot and they're just like this like energy tandem that is just creating chances while they're down a man. And, and um, yeah, this year he's third in scoring behind Malkin and Stamkos. He's fourth in hard voting between the behind those guys and Lundqvist. And uh, it's well-deserved. If, if anything, like his underlying profile is even more impressive where at this stage of his career, he, using that speed, he's drawing so many penalties. He's generating scoring chances like crazy. And he never really has been the same player since then. Like he's had a fantastic career. Don't get me wrong. But it's just like, I remember at this time, if you told me like this is just kind of the, the the start of it, I would have totally believed it, and it wound up being probably his best season. So I do think this is Apex Mountain for him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I know we've been we've been teasing it, so I want to hear your uh, your Evgeny Malkin Apex Mountain run. Yeah, so it's tough because I think that stretch from oh eight from two thousand seven to two thousand nine, where they make back to back cup finals and he wins the Conn Smythe, like his production in those two years is so ridiculous that it's very fair to say that that those two years are his apex but in this season in 75 games he has 50 goals 109 points the crazy thing is 96 of those 109 are primary so he only has 13 secondary assists he's playing 21 minutes a night he takes 611 shots which is first in the league ahead of ovechkin which happened only a couple times in the past whatever 15 years he draws 48 penalties which is the third most he serves up a 40 goal season on a silver platter for james neal here where after this season neal's next best is 31 with the predators like he's never reached these heights before and only 12 of those 40 were not assisted by malkin he's just on another level and he's doing most of it without crosby crosby only plays 22 games this season Yet the Penguins don't really miss a beat. Like Malkin is just so good and playing so much for them that he's single-handedly carrying them. He wins the Art Ross. He wins the Ted Lindsay. He gets 144 out of 149 first place votes for the heart. And just going back and rewatching it on YouTube, like he obviously has that legendary goal against the Lightning where like he just 
cuts and weaves through the entire defense and scores on a ridiculous solo effort but he's got any number of ones there's this goal he scores against the abs where it's just like the peak combination for him of ability to be fast but also using that frame and still creativity and he's still healthy and so i think this is for me, the best Evgeny Malkin ever was, even though they lose in round one. And I guess that speaks to how ridiculously good Sean Couturier was that at five on five, he basically neutralizes him and James Neal in this series. Like you really don't see that caliber of play from Malkin in these six games. Yeah, and he definitely uh, he definitely gets frustrated. You know, absolutely gets frustrated in this uh, in this series. That said, I mean, he has his moments. He definitely has has some brilliant moments. I think in the uh, the beginning of Game Three, um, I think it's Pierre who's like, "Yeah, this is like Malkin looks like the guy you, they need to see." Um, then obviously the whole thing kind of falls apart, and by the third period, I think he's criticizing him. But you know, there are moments where you see just why Malkin was so good well, this regular season. There's one sequence in Game Two. Um, I think the Drew or Talbot scores a shorthanded goal, and I forget what they made the score, but Pierre Maguire points out how um, Dan Bilesma is going to keep Malkin out there because he made a mistake on that shorthanded goal and he wants him to play angry. And literally Malkin on the ensuing faceoff wins the faceoff cleanly, takes the puck down ice, does this like spinorama pass, and the yeah. Penguins score within six seconds. And you're like, he just physically decided that he was going to create a goal there. And he did it within six <laughs> seconds in a playoff game. Like, I understand it's not a very repeatable thing. You can't just keep banking on that. But it just shows that unique talent and physical ability of when, like, he was pissed off and when he wanted to, he could do something that really no one else in the world could have. Yeah, I think there's, and I think this is something that even like some Pittsburgh writers buy into this idea that Malkin plays his best when Crosby isn't playing. Because it's just almost this feeling of like, now I got to be the guy. And this season was a year where Crosby spent most of the year out because of the, of the concussions. And, you know, th- this season, I think, is where maybe that that idea, that theory sort of stems from. Because he was just so dominant, almost because the Penguins needed him to be that dominant. We've talked about how, you know, they didn't have incredible forward depth, you know, beyond him you know, Crosby, Neal, and Stahl. So, you know, part the reason why the Penguins were so good this season is because Malkin was so good. And yeah, they get Crosby back at the end. And that's part the reason why I think everybody viewed them as slammed on cup favorites. It's like, well, how good are they going to be when they get Crosby back? And you almost do wonder if there is something to that, that Malkin was a guy where, you know, when he felt like he had to be the, you know, the alpha, that he just upped his game to an entirely different level. Yeah, I think there's also an. I mean, I'm sure there's a psychological element. I'm sure it's also like playing with better players. Um, yeah, like and, uh, yeah, there's. But then you can make the argument that he's playing against other teams' best players as well. So yeah, it's 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 quite the debate. And with Crosby, it's tough because pretty clearly his apex to me is right before that first concussion in 2010-11, where he had the 50 points in 25 games and he had like 25 goals during that stretch. He was just out of this world. Um, but you know, it's. Looking back at this era, I watching these games was really thrown back into that mindset of remembering just how weird of a time it was as a hockey fan watching Crosby play because you were kind of on pins and needles watching each collision involving him where you were like, oh my God, like, is he going to get up from that? And he gets up and he kind of makes a weird face and you're wondering whether he's never going to see him again. And it was a it was a weird time. That's what was also like so jarring seeing him getting so physical in this game, fighting Giroux, like almost fighting yeah. Shen again. And you know they win that cup in two thousand nine. 
He they stunningly lose in 2010 to the Habs in round two. They don't have Malkin or Crosby in 2011 in the playoffs when they lose to the Lightning. And then I think that's why people were so high on the Penguins heading into this postseason because it had been so long since we'd seen them at full health with Crosby and Malkin. And Crosby only plays 22 regular season games in this year. And he comes back sort of mid-March and looks great. And he has like 37 points in 22 games or something. And so I think that's kind of speaks to why everyone was so high on them. But at the same time, I, I so distinctly remember being just so terrified each time he took a hit wondering whether he was going to re-aggravate it and whether he was going to miss an extended period of time again. And it's crazy to think about that when you think about just how good he was at that time and he was at his absolute apex, but we got deprived of such large periods of time from him. Yeah, and and I think too, you know, just speaking from purely from a hockey fan perspective, like it does, because I, I had kind of forgotten about that until you just mentioned it, that feeling of like, oh God, the next hit that Sidney Crosby takes could be the last one of his career considering these concussion issues that he's having. And it kind of makes it take a step back and just be thankful that he was able to get past that. I mean, we yeah, we, we, we got cheated out of a couple years that may have been Crosby's best years, especially with regards to what we know about, you know, the statistical aging curve and things like that. But like, we've got we got the entire second half of the 2010s of Crosby pretty much playing every game and and being, you know, the best or one of the best players in the world in all of those years. And looking back to where our minds are at in 2012 in this series, like that was far from a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Well, looking back at that time, so in two, so from that first um, stretch of concussions in 2011 to 2013, he misses 113 games in that time. In the games he played in those seasons, he had 159 points in 99 games. Jeez. Um, Jeez. So yeah, that was like his clear sort of apex. And it's funny, like to think about him you know we've had all these conversations this season about Ovechkin moving up the all-time goal scoring leaderboard and thinking about where Crosby stands all time in terms of points and you sort of remove that from the equation um you also not to mention obviously the 2012 lockout uh missing all these regular season games now with this pandemic but also just think about where the league was at in this stretch from like 2011 to 2017, where there was such a dip in offense to the point where Jamie Ben's winning the Art Ross one season with 87 points. And it's like, imagine if he had played healthy at his prime during this kind of current era where goal scoring was so up and everyone was putting up these video game totals. I guess you're right. We should be taking a glass half full approach where we've gotten so much from his career and especially those back-to-back cups with that sort of second stage of Malkin and Crosby. Um, it was such a it was so volatile that the fact that we got that is a good thing but there's also so much left on the table and it's tough not to think about like what could have been if he had been healthy yeah yeah definitely um so i've got malkin as apex i've got claude Giroux. i've got paul holmgren as we mentioned this was a perfect combination of an era where teams were just so gratuitously spending long-term contracts in the double digits were allowed but there was also a lack of understanding of aging curves, or maybe teams just didn't care about the future. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I remember at this time, it was sort of, I think, public thought was generally that players age between 28 and 32, maybe even towards 33, 34. Like, people legitimately thought that. And now we obviously know that it's much before that. But I think that speaks to why there were so many contracts being handed out to UFAs that were 27, 28 for like seven, eight years ahead of time. 
Yeah, I guess you could say this was like Apex Mountain for that style of general managing because it never really came back after this. And Paul Holmgren was the poster child for just like aggressiveness to a fault about everything, as as we mentioned. Um, I guess another guy who this probably was his apex. Interestingly enough, he he isn't that good in this series. But like this, this is probably Scott Hartnell's apex. Oh, you know, absolutely. This is when he's on a line. Yep. This is when he's on a line with Drew and Yager, and he just racks up the goals because he's in the center of that power play unit, um, which became like one of the best, if not the best, uh, PP one in hockey during this part of the of the decade. And uh, and he scores thirty seven goals, and you know he's obviously a good player the rest of his career. But this is definitely his moment of you know first line winger Scott Hartnell, where you didn't say that, and you said that, and you weren't laughing as you were saying it. Like, he actually was very very good. He was. I remember this very distinctly. I had him on my fantasy team. He was an absolute rock star. He had thirty seven goals, sixty seven points, one hundred and thirty six penalty minutes. 230 <laughs> shots, 16 power play goals, and he was playing like 18 minutes a night. And I remember from a likability perspective, he was also at his apex. Remember, he had in the All-Star game, suck it for enough. And then I think in this season, shortly thereafter, they play the Leafs and he scores a goal and then literally fights for enough right after he no, scores. For enough. Um, yeah, he had the Hartnell, Hartnell down, Hart, the Hartnell down thing where like yep. there was a fan on Twitter that made the joke about Hartnell falling all the time and he turned it into a Hartnell down hashtag and then Hartnell got totally behind it and actually turned it into a charity. Like that was, that was just kind of the guy he was and why he connected really well with the city. Yep, he was really likable and, you know, he shoots 16% this season and the Flyers this summer sign him to a six-year $28.5 million deal that kicks in when he's 32. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because they signed him in advance, similar to what you're talking about with Pronger, where the deal actually kicked in the year after. So during that lockout-shortened season, he plays only 32 games. He has 11 points, but they've already committed $28.5 million to him. And he makes it a couple of years, and then they trade him in basically a salary dump to Columbus. They get RJ Umberger, who's a worse player. They wind up buying him out as well. And CBJ is still playing, is still paying Hartnell for the next two seasons. So um, I guess those are just kind of some fun facts. Another reminder of why you shouldn't be buying at a guy's absolute apex for long term when he has a shooting percentage spike and everything goes well the way it did for him here. So it was a great year, but it's it's also peak Paul Holmgren from the decision to pay a guy so far in advance for such a long period of time just because he had that one great year. Yeah, definitely. Definitely functions as a cautionary tale, without a doubt. Um, who won this game? That's that's a fascinating question because I don't, like, it was just such a bizarre game. It's hard to point out one person. Um, you know, yeah, I, I think if you wanted to get creative, you could theoretically argue Paul Holmgren won this game. Yep. Um, but uh, if we're talking about a player, you know, a guy who, again, we didn't really talk about that much. Danny Briere really does turn this game. I mean, it it basically he gets the, the goal that puts the Flyers up to one. Um, he gets that on the uh, I believe it's a two man advantage when when he gets that goal. Um, and he just like he then scores the goal that puts him up three one as well, which was one of like it's on a three on two and he just plays the three on two perfectly he center he he does a, a middle lane drive and just goes past both defensemen and then redirects the puck in and then he sets up the matt reed goal at the end of this period um by just absolutely outworking uh Derek Anglin 
And, you know, if, if you're talking about like a player who wins this game, Briere just made three fantastic plays in the first period that really give the Flyers a lead that they're never going to relinquish. But as I said, if you want to get creative, I think you could argue Holmgren just because of the, the sheer forward depth that he created and how they took advantage of it in this game. Yep. Yeah, I was thrown right back into that time where I forgot the legend of Danny Briere and his postseason production. He scores two goals in game one and turns that game around. He scores a couple on this one and turns it around as well. Um, They're talking on the broadcast about how, uh, I guess, Claude Giroux had lived with him the year before and then Sean Couturier is living with him this season. And yeah, it's just, it it was just, uh, I totally forgot because it's been so long now and he plays for the Habs a bit after this, after they buy him out. But there was a lot of Danny Breer. Yeah, I think, I think the Flyers young players. And then I guess that makes Paul Holmgren just because you see so much from pretty much all of them like Wayne Simmons who we haven't really talked about a lot scores a beautiful goal that basically puts this game on ice um yeah and then mixes it up physically at the end of it you've got and he's on that power play which was so good with him Hartnell Giroux Voracek and then either Tiemann or when Tiemann got tossed I think then Matt Carl in the point but yeah Braden Shen is involved in this one um Couturier obviously Voracek as well so those guys I think it has to be Claude Giroux just because he produces offensively in this game. You mentioned like physically, he looks probably even more effective than he did when he had six points in game two, but he also just really gets in Crosby's head and drives him crazy as well. And and so you put all of that together and it's just kind of this perfect marriage of him just doing everything that made him special during his time. So I think you could probably make the case for, for Giroud, but the fact that we're having this conversation sort of speaks to how versatile and deep this Flyers team was that, there isn't really one choice because they had such a team effort of guys just chipping in pretty much from every different direction. Yeah, I think you can absolutely make a case for Giroux. And if, if you're looking purely at like who played the best in the game, I think it's probably Giroux. Yeah. Like, as I said, watching this game, I was blown away at how, how good he looked throughout the 60 minutes. You know, he gets a Gordie Howe hat trick in this game. And Somehow that seemed like whatever because the game before he had three goals and three assists. But uh, you know he, he he fights Crosby. He scores that great goal at the start of the third. He he gets an assist on the Talbot goal, and he's just all over the ice. So you know I, I Briere has the benefit of like he got the goals and he set up the goals more than than, than Giroud did. But I, I agree if you're talking purely about like who played the best in this game, I, I think it's probably Giroud. We didn't really talk that like we talked about what he did at the end uh, in terms of James Neal. I totally forgot that insane goal he scores where he he splits oh, yeah. the Flyers D and they run into each other and he scores he scores another sweet power play goal after I think he has like double digit shots in this game. He's so active, but it also knowing that he completely freaked out and just went off the deep end and wound up getting suspended because of it. Um it was kind of ominous to see like how physically involved he was in this game leading up to that incident too. There's a moment where Nicholas Grossman uh, knee, goes knee on knee with him. There's a moment where Braden Coburn, like after the play, kind of like rubs him out against the boards. And you're just like, you could just see now that we know how it turns out that he was sort of like yeah. a ticking time bomb from like each of those probably led to him just ultimately being like, I'm so sick of this and just acting out. And yeah. it turned out horribly for both him and the, and the Penguins. Yeah, I, it's funny. I, I had notes taken on that as well because that was something that I had 
like obviously I watched this game as a Flyers fan, so that stuff didn't bother me at the time. Mm. In, in retrospect, on a rewatch, it was like you know it doesn't absolve Excuse him no, of for course. totally losing his mind. But at the same time, you, you you're right. You can sort of see you can you can see the progression. Yep. You can see like yeah, the Flyers were were trying to get under his skin. They were taking some liberties with him from the start of this game, and you could sort of see how you know. Add in the fact that, you know, the team's about to go down 3-0. Add in the fact that uh, the game was particularly, you know, a particularly frustrating game this game. Uh, add in the the cup expectations going into the series. And then have a guy like Neil, who already had a reputation of being a little bit of a hothead, you know, has players kind of running him a little bit in the first half of this game. You can, you can kind of understand why he would just say screw it and just start taking cheap shots it doesn't make it right yep. but it's sort it does it does make you like sort of put yourself in his shoes and be like yeah you know it makes a little bit more sense now why he lost his mind in the third yeah it certainly did not come out of nowhere i'll just say that um man this is a this was a lot of fun we i think this is the first ever two-hour pdo cast so oh um, god <laughs> but you know what I think this series and this game justified it. There were so many different angles to it that we had to get to it all. So I'm glad we did. I think we did it justice. I think we did uh, all the main storylines and talking points. I highly recommend people go watch this on YouTube. All of the games are available in their entirety. Um, Charlie, plug some stuff. What uh, what are you up to these days and where can people find you online? Uh, yeah, so still, you know, writing on a regular basis at The Athletic, uh, you know, trying to pump out articles in this hockey pause world. Um, so definitely, uh, definitely check that out if, if you're a subscriber or if you're not. Um, we got that 90-day uh, free trial thing. So if you, uh, you want to check out the articles I've been writing uh, and don't you know don't want to pay right right away we got that 90 day free trial thing going on um and then also just from a podcast standpoint i still do uh do the podcast with uh with bsh radio um and we're still pumping out the content uh doing you know five six seven shows a week even with uh with no hockey so uh we uh, i'm not on all the shows we have a, a ton of great people on that steph driver uh, kelly hankel bill matz uh the flight Perbly crew uh it's it's a lot of good stuff even if you're not like a uh if you're not a flyers fan i think it's it's fun content like i'm doing a a, a show that's literally just uh like i pick a i pick a movie or an album and then the person that's on the show with me picks a movie or an album that either one of us hasn't seen and then we just talk through it for an hour so we're just you know trying to keep busy during this uh this time without hockey and uh if you're if you're interested in podcasts i think uh, i think we've got a pretty good uh pretty good bunch so yeah that's that's kind of what i'm doing right now awesome man well um stay safe during this crazy time be well and um this yeah was you a blast. i'm glad we got to do this and let's definitely do it again soon all right thanks a lot for having me Dimitri. Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.